Stephen Cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Zilla X-Pod. Todd Zilla X-Pod. Sometimes at night, I see their faces. I feel the traces they've left on my soul. And those are the memories that make me a wealthy soul. Tell you those are the memories Oh, Bob Seeger tune and uh, Traveling Man. Usually backed up with Beautiful Loser. It's a live, uh, I think from Live Bullet. I have if no I remember idea. right. Traveling Man, Beautiful Loser. Figured that was an appropriate song for the last episode with uh, my buddy Chris Dyson. We are back in Kalamazoo. Woohoo! Been a hell of a week, huh? Amazing. Let's <laughs> fit in with the rest of the two months. No, it wasn't so bad. Intended to get one of these out last week. We have two other ones. Well, you know that by now, because this is the third one, so if you're a regular. Because you're devoted followers. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly what you are. But, uh, yeah, I meant to get one of these out last week, and uh, the uh, move in uh, Massachusetts was a little weird. It's a move. A thousand-mile move. So, I wish, I wish this was a video podcast, because we're set up in the basement of this house, and all of our shit... <laughs> it's piled up right next to me. And I've got this massive desk that Chris said uh, reminds him of a teacher desk. I've got it set up yesterday, so this is kind of weird. Anyway, this is the uh, Todd's Pod, Escaping the Cave. I think this is episode number seven. I'm losing track. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, today, I guess we're going to get back into... Do we want to touch that? No. No. So we're going to get straight into some good stuff. <laughs> sounds wrong. <laughs> what he was pointing at was a newspaper article. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, what is today? It's the 23rd or something like 25th. that? 25th. 25th, yeah. You're yeah. almost there. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this article, I'm not going to get into it, but an article in the Kalamazoo Gazette about the Second Amendment. It was pretty good. It was a decent article. I haven't read it. I let uh, Chris thumb through it, was, it while it I was. It was really good. Yeah, just the last two lines got into his agenda a little bit. He had to get his uh, his viewpoint in there. Right. Huh? But otherwise, it was really balanced. I guess the founders and their interpretation of what they intended, the Second Amendment. Yeah, it was just emphasizing the, the founders, both sides, the arguing founders, were both really emphatic that a key importance was the militias because they didn't want a standing army. Right, it was an, it was an opposition to the standing army, right? Right. Yeah, in yeah. case the standing army decides to impose tyranny upon the people... You wanted a militia to... Right. Let's not get into this. No. So anyway, hitchhiking. So we talked in the last episode about uh, Chris's walk cross-country, I think, right? Yeah. That ended in 2004. And you and I met later on that year. November. Yeah, via the uh, the wonders of the internet. I found his uh, the blog that he was writing up uh, while he was uh, walking across country when I first decided and had this uh, sort of vision of uh, jumping in a backpack and carrying 53 books and a big stereo with me to uh, go escape. <laughs> Perfect. Wanted to find someone who'd actually done it. I found the blog he had written, liked it, really appreciated. You know what I liked about it was the, the honesty. I think I found the part that you were talking about with your girlfriend and the breakup. The breakup, yeah. Yeah, right around Denver. And he wrote it up. The soap opera. Yeah, but you it, you were really <laughs> honest about it, though. You weren't blaming her. You weren't... No. My memory's yeah. a little off. I didn't go back and read it. It's, I don't think it's up anymore. But I just appreciated the honesty. It's like, hey, this guy is actually telling what this shit's really like. Pretty neat. So I sent him an email, and we started an email dialogue. And we happened to be uh, Hurricane Ivan rolled through Florida, ran us out of there. We moved to Santa Fe and went through Denver 
to finish up the move to bring stuff back to Michigan, and uh, that's where we met. Set at a Denny's for <laughs> I don't uh, know, like two or three hours. Yeah, or at something. least. Yeah, in the middle of a ride home <laughs> from from uh, New Mexico to Michigan. So something like that. And then yeah, uh, over the next few years, um, we discussed a lot of things, and I started trying to come up with this idea to. Uh, I guess set off. It wasn't really, I don't think it was a solid idea. I think it was more like, I, I think I envisioned more of what you were doing uh, as far as the walk goes, but not quite as dogmatic about walking every step. I just kind of wanted to get out there, I think. Yeah, I remember you were looking at a bike trip at one point. Started on one. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Didn't last very long. <laughs> I hated it, man. You know, the nice thing about the uh, the bike trip, well, you don't have to carry 50 pounds in your back, and you can still kind of go and wander around, but you're mobile. You're more mobile. The problem with bikes is they break, right. <laughs> and tires go flat. And, and you got to figure out what to do with them when you when you stop. Yeah. you got to lock them up or make sure they're secure. And... Yeah, there's this guy named Gary. Uh, he called himself Gary the Walking Man House, H-A-U-S-E. He was on and, a bike? Yeah, he started on a bike. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right there. Keep going. Started off bike touring. And he, I guess, wanted to set some sort of record for bike touring. He took off and was um, zipping around Mexico or maybe some Central American country. I can't remember. But he went to sleep one night, and he woke up, and his bike was gone. So he, he ended that trip, and he came back to the U.S., and the way he got walking, man, was that uh, he decided he was going to start walking. And he, what he, he wanted to do was set some sort of a, kind of like, like our buddy Ray, he wanted to set some sort of record for right. most miles walked. So he would go take off like twice a year mm-hmm. and go from point to point. He'd fly someplace like Guatemala City, and then he would spend the next couple of months say, walking, I don't know, to Costa Rica. Right. Or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he would do that every every so often. And that's why he he stopped it, because the the bicycle was stolen. He figured out it's it's much easier to keep track of my stuff and keep track of, <clears throat> you know, where I'm going, what I'm doing, rather than having a, a piece of a mechanical piece of machinery that uh, breaks down. And... It's like when Kat and I did our bike, we, we biked around the Baltic Sea mm-hmm. um, two years ago now, I guess. Yeah, that didn't convert me to... Wanting to be on a bike at all. No. <laughs> no. I mean, I enjoyed the trip. It was nice. Yeah. It's always fun to bike to Russia. But, yeah, I didn't like having to keep track of it. I didn't like having to fix them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't like that. To me, I had, I mean, from the from the walk cross country perspective, you're more, more mobile. But getting into, since doing the hitchhiking stuff, then I feel less mobile because now I have this bike. Right. That I need to bring with me mm-hmm. wherever I'm going. I can't, like, decide to walk 3,000 miles or whatever and then get in a car. You know, I have to figure out what to do with the bike. Yeah. Yeah, I took off. I actually planned that all out in 2006 and uh, spent the summer getting my gear together. I had a trek. Uh, this is really expensive. It's a, uh, like a $1,500 bike, mm-hmm. you know, that was made for bike touring 520 or something like that and spent the whole summer trying to get myself healthy trying to get the gear together had the leather saddle and the four hundred dollar panniers yeah took off this guy bruno from uh, montreal that i'd met on couch surfing he was kind of doing the same thing and he comes down to denver we leave we get a snowstorm we leave in october because i was working for the rockies at the time and the the season ended so that's when we left And, and denver gets snow early yeah so the first day we go we've got a you know like nine inches of snow piling up on us like <laughs> fuck this still in denver we hadn't quite gotten out of the city yet so we just t- kind of turned around 
<laughs> went back, and it was like the, uh, the the useless shit epiphany thing that I like to talk about with the day you dropped me off. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but I had too much shit with me. Yeah. And I did the same thing on the bike. Yeah. I was like 130 pounds on top of me. And yep. I was weighing about 180 at the time, so that's pretty pretty chunky. <laughs> yeah. And so I uh, I went back and I got I I think everything that I took off the bike I think totaled out to like 50 pounds. Yeah, and I I didn't miss anything when we took off again. Well, that's what's funny about the bike tour around the Baltic was, uh, so Cat went out and bought a a bike specifically for me because I'm going from coming in from the states over to Germany. We're leaving out of Hamburg, so she bought this. I think it was yeah about 15 1500 or no, I think it was actually only seven or eight hundred euro. So she gets that, and I come out, and we test it out, and we're all excited about it. I'd gotten this new seat that was supposed to be great for long-term riding, and bring it back to the house. And the next morning, we're supposed to leave, and we wake up, and the bike's gone. Yeah. <laughs> and Cat was so like paranoid about about going through Poland because of all the stereotypes of Polish people stealing things. Uh, and here we are in Hamburg. We hadn't even left, and the bike's gone. That was the only time we had anything stolen on the whole trip. Yeah. Going through Poland, the Baltic states, uh, Russia, <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so instead she's all upset and freaking out and saying, oh, God, we can't go, we can't go. We still had another bike. We had we had her bike, which was really nice, and then we had her um, her father's old bike from, from the 80s, the West Germany days, <laughs> and... and um, and so I was just like, well, let's just go on that. If we can make it to Poland, that'd be great because in Poland everything's cheaper and we'll just get a new bike there or we'll get new parts there. And, and sure enough, it made it all the way through eastern Germany into uh, like right when we crossed the border. It's the very first city crossing the border. I forget what went. It was the chain or something like that. But but that that shitty little bike from the 80s or 90s or whatever, that lasted the whole way around. and It completely broke down the day we got back to Hamburg. <laughs> Good timing. Yeah, it's perfect. First thing that happened when I when we left before the snowstorm, we're taking you know you know Denver. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have bike paths all over the place down right. there. So we we went south and decided to get on. I think we were headed toward Cherry Creek State Park. So somehow we'd left Capitol Hill, gone south to very the almost extreme south Denver, and then cut east trying to get there. And we're cruising down this uh, this bike path. And just do 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 do, you know. We're moving along pretty well. We come up on a curve, and there's this little fucking this this guy on this little toothpick of a racing bike. Yeah. Who came flying around the corner way too fast? I mean, this was before I got rid of my gear. Right, you're on a tank. I yeah, I'm like 340 pounds on a steel frame bike, and he comes plowing into me. And <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like a Yugo hitting a semi. Yeah. He went flying. He's a pling. <laughs> and I was knocked over, you know, I was knocked off to the side. I didn't even uh I didn't even leave my feet, but he hit uh the spokes on my front wheel. Ooh. Yeah, so we had to the first thing we had to do was go and find a bike shop to get the the spokes trued. Oh, so they don't yeah. so that cuz we're leaving. Yeah, you know, I got all this weight on there. I got to have this shit right and I don't know enough about bikes to really fix it. That was the first inclination that I'm like, yeah, maybe this isn't such a good. You know, if this happens out in the middle of, I don't know, Texas. Right. Oh, I might go fix this. <laughs> right. Yeah, probably not. Anyway, yeah, we get back and we the snowstorm hits, we go home, get back on the bike, lighter. We actually do a full day stealth camp for the first time nice. with bike. That was that was actually kind of cool. It was really cold, but uh, the next day we're driving down Parker Road. Parker Road's busy, and it's a two two lane, mm-hmm. you know, opposite direction traffic. It's not a divided highway, and I hated it because the shoulder was maybe two three feet, 
and you're loaded down on that bike and you've got the racks on it, it's really, really hard, unless you've been riding for a really long time, Mm -hmm. hard to keep that thing straight. And you've got cars passing within a couple of feet. I hated that. That was yeah. that was the thing I hated the most. That was another thing I didn't like about the biking was like anytime we were on the road and we had a narrow shoulder, walking. I'm totally fine with that because I can I can jump into the bushes. I, you know, I can get out of the way if I see something. I can walk with the oncoming traffic. Biking, you have to ride with the traffic, so you can't see anybody coming, and you don't know if there's some like. A wall guy just yeah. flying down, zigzagging around. Some but, drunk, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'll stick to my feet. Yeah, I was uh, I was sold after that, <laughs> definitely. And it took me, I it took me, I think a couple of years after that because I was like, I, I spent the whole summer on this. Yeah, and uh, I was like, oh fuck. All right, well, guess this is done. Guess I'll go get a radio job. <laughs> so yeah, the radio job in Santa Fe, the last radio gig I had, I had the morning show there. wasn't happy. wasn't very pleasant to work with wound up getting fired quickly in that uh that i think was the uh the trigger is like that was when we reconnected yeah because we had a a gap in there from Mm -hmm. meeting in 04 and hanging out a bit in 05 and then yeah had like a gap of not hanging out i was floating around in seattle and england and things like that and then when i came back i think i was still in england when i when i messaged you and you had just been fired yeah, I, I seem to. I don't know. There's a we have a, a sort of a, a difference in the in the recollection there because I thought I was at the radio station. I seem to remember getting the email from you at the radio station. So, that might have been. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's uh, I yeah I ended up getting fired. I think at the it was the last day of November. I was living in Espanol near Espanola, New Mexico, north of Santa Fe. And Santa Fe is a nice town. There's not a lot there. You have to have some sort of profession or you're out basically making adobe and, and slinging sheetrock. You got a reason to be there. Yeah, right. And I quickly learned that it wasn't a lot of work for me uh, anywhere. I was like applying to Jiffy Lube mm-hmm. and not getting calls. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I ended up uh, answering an ad on Craigslist uh, that March and they were looking for carnies. Oh, right. Yeah, and it was just, that. yeah, some guy uh, had an ad up there. I'm like, fuck it not doing anything else let's see what this is and he got back to me immediately he was like yep just fill this out pretty sure we can place you within a couple of days i'm on a bus going off to odessa texas when were you at the the katrina oh that was yeah that was right after the right after the uh the hurricane in 2005 yeah because i always lump that all to all together for some reason i didn't realize it was that early yeah, it was, well, Katrina was 05, and I went right. down to... Uh, well, it's still a shithole, I think. Hmm? Katrina? Isn't it still no. a mess down there? <laughs> no, it's, I don't know. I haven't been in a long time. I've heard I've heard they've done a, a pretty good job with the cleanup. Oh, okay. But I, and, and uh, yeah, I went down to um, Mississippi to volunteer with uh, Humane Society. That's an interesting story in and of itself, just because of the dogma that I ran into. I thought, I was really naive at that point, because I thought that the, one of the main reasons I wanted to go to New Orleans it reminded me of kind of a nine, like a small scale nine eleven, right? Where people are going to be, you know, working together because they have to, because this devastation has happened. You're going to put your differences aside and you're going to work together and blah blah blah. I was such, I was so naive because I got down there and uh, I was in this town called uh, Tyler Town, working for the Humane Society. And one of the first things I realized when I got there, there was another camp set up like a quarter mile down the road, and they were competing with each other 
for donations. They were competing with each other to get animals. They were trying to tell each other how there was no cooperation there whatsoever. Yeah, it was like McDonald's and Burger King next door to each other. That's what I found getting now coming back from Peru, landing in Massachusetts and and in the in 2014 when I first got back for the first time, started living there, right? I was interested in finding out what was going on with nonprofits and efforts and that kind of stuff and and I was thinking same thing, like, you know, like what kind of coordination and cooperation is going on here and, and found the same thing. They're, they're all competing for grants, competing, you know, unwilling to share their their finances and resources with each other because they're afraid they'll lose their grant money next year or whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I don't know. I guess that's a whole another topic, but it... I don't know. I just, it, it was, it, it, to me, it was, it kind of broke me out of my I mean, the little utopian bubble, abstract bubble I was living in, assuming that people, if things got bad enough, that people would put their differences aside and work toward right. a common goal. No. The one group of people that did that, we went down into the city, into the really devastated parts of New Orleans, to find animals that had been displaced by uh, the hurricane. Found a lot of them. There's this one place, a Winn-Dixie parking lot, uh, where people had, I don't know, these huge, uh, they remind me of small circus tents. I don't know right. how you describe them other than that. But they had all these pets inside who had been, in, a lot of them had been injured. And they're, they're set up on concrete. And they had the tents tied down with the parking, you know, the things that you pull into a parking lot to go in front of the wheels, whatever they're called, parking. Those like cement things? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how they were tying their tents down. But there was such a wind that day. It was just this gale shooting through the parking lot, blowing their tents all over the place. It was like a sail and hauling these concrete. Oh, shit. It was blowing that hard. Wow. Yeah. Their tents are actually in the parking lot as well. Their personal tents where they were sleeping. Mm-hmm. They weren't in hotels. I mean, New Orleans have been devastated. Right. So they're sleeping in little single-man tents on the concrete. So they've got to go chase their tents down half the time. Then they've got to come back from getting their house that's blowing across the, the parking lot. Right. Then they've got to tend to the tent they're working in. And then go deal with animals and deal with it was I was really actually impressed with those folks because they didn't have time to sit there and and deal with petty bullshit. Right. And you could tell how devoted and dedicated they were to what they were doing Mm -hmm. because they weren't knocked off track by that. I'm just curious how many people in those other camps that you were the ones that were competing with each other. How Mm -hmm. many of them were from there? I have no idea. I never went down and talked to him. I didn't do a, like a census or anything like that. But I can tell you from the the camp I was in, none, yeah. zero. Yeah, and that's what I wonder if it's you're coming to this area to like go be good and help and whatever. Yeah. You're kind of going on an ego that yeah. you're gonna you're gonna go fix it all up. Look at me. Yeah, and so you start competing with with the others of who's the most humble. Yeah, well, yeah, who's the more <laughs> the most who's altruistic? The more, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is, I think, that's common. I think that's uh, the apocalypse industry that's now growing. <laughs> that, that I see industrial complex. I yeah, I think yeah. I'm in that industry with the permaculture stuff and the hmm. environmental thing that's fitting into that whole apocalypse in- industry that I think is growing. Yeah, not to go off on a tangent, but I've noticed the uh, uh, the permaculture, the the click that's mm-hmm. involved in how it's being uh, sort of co-opting itself into liberal doctrine and dogma. I sent you a link a long time ago, and I can't even remember what it was about, but there was something about the permaculturists and Trumpists, Trump people. Yeah. You know, they were just basically, fuck you people. Well, I think permaculture is an easy easy thing for the for the liberal agenda to kind of hijack because it's easily associated with hippies. 
they don't do themselves a lot of good either, you know, as far as, as dispelling that. No, a lot of people wanna, encourage it. Yeah, I'm painting a little little bit too wide. At least the example I'm thinking of really fed into that stereotype. That is just a hipper, you know, liberal hippie camp where anybody who's not a far leftist really shouldn't apply to come in. That's the impression I got anyway. But anyway, yeah, New Orleans was cool. It was uh, a really, uh, it was a real eye opener. We we were rescuing dogs. Dogs are big in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Go figure. And a lot of pit bulls. Mm-hmm. And so we're out in the middle of nowhere. Tyler Town is a l- real mm-hmm. rural part of Mississippi. The woods surrounded this whole makeshift camp we had, and we built uh, like a chain link pen for all these dogs that we could put in there fucking rednecks down there i hate mississippi i hate it i fucking hate it now Uh, aside from the blunt and blatant racism you run into every every fucking day when you go out of town these motherfuckers at two o'clock in the morning would come into our camp cut the chain link fence steal the pit bulls Mm -hmm. so we had to set people up we had like 65 year old women sitting on top of this like semi truck standing guard yeah. We had to have guard shifts, not to protect the animals from anything but local thieves who wanted to cut dog in. Dog fights. Yeah. And in the middle of the night, when they weren't breaking in, you'd hear the dog fights. Yeah. They were they were happening close enough. If you like animals, it was one of the most horrendous things you could ever listen to. And mm-hmm. you couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. When we call the, the local <laughs> sheriff guy, he comes out and we, we tell him what's going on. They're coming in, stealing these dogs, they're cutting through, and then you can hear the dog fights. In the woods, over there, they're 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 over that way. Right. Well, what you gonna do about a boy's gonna be boys, I guess. Sounds like Peru. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> that was <laughs> it. I doesn't uh, sound too different. It's funny we mentioned that. I wasn't even gonna go down the uh, New Orleans track, but that had a huge yeah. impact on me as far as um, dogma and getting caught. I, this was before you know social media, but it had its own echo chamber. Right. Yeah. Just surrounding yourself. I think it always has. Every little industry, I think, has its own little echo chamber, you know, I mean, before social media, because you get, you know, a bunch of business guys grouped together in a business meeting or in a, you know, an office building, and all they're doing is associating with each other with other businesses. You're going to have that echo chamber. You're going to have, like, the hippies who are moving from camp to camp to camp and hitchhiking with each other, and they're only picking one another up, and you're going to have that echo chamber. It's tribalism. It was it was years before I even, you know, started to pay attention to that. But it's like, it was like the, the humane society tribe here. Right. And whatever. I was called Best Friends. That was what the name of the group was, Best Friends. Mm-hmm. And they had their own <clears throat> tribe. Yeah. And they just naturally had to fight each other, compete with each other at least. Yeah. Yeah. I came home. I was like, okay, we're going to reevaluate this whole altruistic, you know, when <laughs> devastation and tragedy hits, the human race will come together and sing Kumbaya. Uh-uh. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talk about the asteroid every now and then. I, I, I actually want the asteroid that hits the Earth and uh, wipes out the humanovirus to be named Todzilla because that would make me feel really good. <laughs> and um, when I start to think about that a little bit, a lot of people say that's what we need to put all our differences aside and come. No, I don't think that's even no. going to do it. Well, no. but I mean, you have positive examples of that, too. I mean, when I was in 9-11 in New York, everybody did come together. At least my memory of it is everybody coming together. I remember talking with some like the guys who were looking real thuggy over on uh, in the corners of some shitty neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And we're asking each other if we're OK. Yeah, <laughs> you know how long did that last? Uh, in New York, that lasted about three weeks. Yeah, I was I was thinking too because I remember it. Uh, I was in Kalamazoo. I wasn't in New York, obviously, but uh, 
I, that's kind of where that fed from, was that I remembered after 9-11, mm-hmm. there was a real sense of commonality yeah. where people were really just not even bothering with politics and not bothering with just these divisive, I guess, topics as yeah. much as they as they were before. And this was right after the election, right after Al Gore and, and Bush and all that, right. in a year anyway. And uh, it's like, wow. And then it just stopped. Then the politics and the divisiveness and the tribalism all sort of took over. But I, when I got to New Orleans, I was I had that in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is a city. This is this is kind of like 9/11. It's not politically charged. It wasn't terrorism or anything. I wonder. I, this has got to be the kind of thing that really will bind people together. Mm-hmm. No. That like holding doors on the subway and stuff like that, and asking people how they were. That lasted a good solid three weeks, but it didn't just drop off. It it yeah. sort of tapered off. But I think because that's where it happened. And but here, God, it's weird. Kalamazoo, I can say here now. This is bizarre. This is so <laughs> bizarre. Uh, yeah, I think it, it was more of a fade, too. It wasn't like we hit a wall. Let's go into Iraq and kill him. No, no, no. You know, that, that none of that really happened, like, right away. It was. I think it was a slow process. These were also unexpected kindnesses, I think, too. Which it wasn't like yeah, uh, yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. didn't hold the door from you. You thought they were an asshole or right. something like that. It was yeah. It was more like you felt like you were the only one doing it, and you had eight million people who thought they were the only ones doing it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> like there was, there was a, le- people were. a legitimate concern for one another. There was yeah, and that and that was nice. And I don't now you have disasters more more often, and um, I wonder how much of that stays. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't been in a disaster zone since then. I tried immediately after the mm-hmm. hurricane. That was another thing that pissed me off, sort of disenchanted me a little bit, was I was trying to volunteer. I was trying to contact people, right? get a hold of, figure out a way that I could. I didn't have any money, right. really, but I, I had my back. I had my arms. You know, I could go do things. All the Red Cross and all the, the corporate charities wanted was money. Yeah, of send course. me money. Yeah. Send me money. Send me money. And no, I don't have money. I have my body. I can go move shit. Right. You know. And the reason that I ended up with the Humane Society was that I didn't even really know where I was going. I just knew there was a camp somewhere, and that I could do something there. So I had to go find it once I got there. But that was the only direct yes that I could get from any anybody else. All the other organizations, the churches, all of them wanted fucking money. Right. And I remembered the, I wouldn't give the Red Cross money because this was four years after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, 9, uh, the Red Cross was accused of fleecing donation money. Yeah. And there was a big scandal about how much money the CEO of the Red Cross, the salary bump that they had gotten something yep. down that line. And I wasn't going to touch the Red Cross. Yeah. Not no, more. I've heard, I mean, on that walk across country, I told you, I walked through Tennessee the month that Ingrid and I had gone back to Maine for her sister's graduation and my stepbrother's uh, wedding, in that month, we would have been walking through Tennessee, and in that month, 400 tornadoes hit the area that we would have been yeah. walking through. And so I did walk through it on my own when I got back to see just the, I mean, I was just walking through it to walk through it, but I saw all the you know houses just leveled everywhere. But along with these, you know, a few weeks had passed at this point, and they had all kinds of bedsheet signs up saying, Red Cross, go home, FEMA, fuck off, you yeah. know? <laughs> they had, we had the exact same thing in New Orleans. Like, the Red Cross trucks just mm-hmm. would randomly just pop in whenever. I mean, it was the same idea, the same exact mentality that you were talking about there, fuck you, Red Cross, go home, FEMA, mm-hmm. was, was prevalent throughout the entire region right. after Katrina. They wanted nothing to do with the Red Cross or FEMA. 
Right. It was just just a shit show. No, and and it sounds. I haven't been following this Puerto Rico thing much, but yeah, I haven't either. Um, I did a little bit back in October, November when I was helping a friend of mine. So I was in touch with some people who I was able to get in contact with then at Puerto Rico. I mean, at that point, the whole west side of the island was in a dark zone, and yeah. Um, but everything I was hearing there would kind of fit that. Mm-hmm. That you know. Red Cross wasn't helping. FEMA yeah. wasn't helping. Nobody was. Nobody was helping there. And at some point, and it's, I think it's been since Katrina, the Red Cross has turned into the national charity. It's like the official charity of America. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it whenever anything happens. Text blah 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 and, and make your ten dollar donate. You know, they're making it real easy on you uh, to hand them money. And I always tell people, since that experience in after Katrina or in Mississippi, don't give them money. You want to do something, get off your ass. Mm-hmm. Stand up, take a furlough from work, mm-hmm. and go donate some labor. If you can't do that, that's fine. Not everybody can. I understand that. Go to the fucking store, buy bottled water, buy fucking cans of tuna fish, something down that, something tangible. Then take that, if you're going to give something to the Red Cross, take it to them. Because they're not going to pay their fucking CEO with cans of Starkist. Right, yeah. You know, that stuff will get to someone, at least. And if you're giving money, at least to these corporate charities... A good portion of whatever you're giving is going first. to, yeah, they're going to those commercials they put on TV. They're not free. Somebody's paying for that. Right. I've always had a real problem. And I get looked at really weird when I say that now because it looks like they're almost sent from Jesus. Right. You know, Jesus has the red the red cross right. <laughs> that he was crucified on. Apparently. Well, that's that's the brilliant thing about these kinds of industries like the Red Cross and FEMA. I mean, FEMA's a government organization. Yeah, they've but got I mean, their shit together, I think. FEMA's, uh, actually, I think they've, they've do they? improved. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. It's the impression. Either way, I mean, what's hard to tell, and I, I mean, I know this from doing the NGO work that I was doing down in Peru, is even there, I mean, even the homegrown stuff, my sister found this when she was in Nicaragua also doing nonprofit work was just the corruption was ever she did a lot of re- my sister's a skilled researcher she did a lot of research to try and find the organization that she would want to contribute her energy to yeah she's looking for the experience of going down and you know spending time in central america but she wanted to help and she wanted to mm-hmm. volunteer somewhere and she found this group sounded great yeah she went down there for five it was like one of these homegrown things that sounded really great and um it was corrupt from the Canadian level where it was born out of down to the Nicaraguan guys who, you know, couldn't be bothered to pick up a trash bag, you know, and she's just sitting there doing it on her own <laughs> because she just still wanted to help and was doing stuff and like looking at them like, you know, you guys can help. And they're like, <laughs> gringa. It just, you know, what it reminds me of is that conversation we had uh, in 09 mm-hmm. going from uh, Michelle's. We're talking about the root of all evil. You know, uh, and, the money, yeah, yeah, just the the dollar sign, the mark of the beast. You know, when you get money involved in these charities, and obviously it's the way society's set up. You get, you can't function without money, right? Right. But it turns at some point the greed. You know, the human uh, tendency toward greed takes over, and yeah, you can't help. You know, this is why I I still think I, I'm going to come back to this every time I talk about this topic from now on. Is that if you really want to help, do not do it with dollars. Right. Do it with something tangible, either your your labor, food, water. Send Puerto Rico a cell phone tower if you got money. You know what I mean? Just something that can be put to use. Yeah, and a great example of that is last month, you know, when I'm, I'm trying to get out of Peru, we had a commitment with the Portland State kids who had come in August. And so I had this money, and I no longer had the hostel to rally volunteers to do the tree planting. 
And I heard about a local group, Homespun, people who lived up in the area where they were going to be doing the tree planting. Well, great. Awesome. So I went to one of their meetings. Everything sounded great. I couldn't figure out who the who the head of it was, though. Uh, so I asked the speaker. I asked a few other people, and they all pointed this one little old lady. Was, oh, yeah, Maria, Maria. She's the one, you know. So, ah, yeah, I got we were going to do a project like this. I've got some money. I'd like to donate it to your project. Oh, yeah, gracias, gracias. And um, I give her $420, which is 1,350 uh, soles. It's a lot of money. Uh, my, For reference, my staff a month made like, I think, 700 or 800 soles a month. So it turned out that lady just thought it was a gift from God. And uh, apparently she had nothing to do with, or she was involved with the effort, but she had nothing to do with the organization. Finally ended up talking to the head of the organization she actually said the same thing. She said, we specifically don't take cash donations because of that, uh, because corruption's pretty rife. And as a rule, the comuneros, the, the people who live there who were part of that project, as a rule, they distrust NGOs because of their experiences. And I obviously wasn't being corrupt if I'm giving them money, but um, I just gave it to the wrong person. And she kept it, and the lady who headed the organization said, you know what, she's a sweet little lady. She's, you know, doing her best to rally rally volunteers, and she's put a lot of her energy in it. Maybe she deserves it anyways. I don't think I want to hassle her about it. And it's like, no. I mean, like, this was a, a gift from students who it wasn't easy for them to come up with that money yeah, either. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd, yeah, I'd yeah, like yeah. to see it go towards what they intended. It all worked out in the end, uh, kind of, hopefully. I yeah. don't know, as far as that lady told me. But, I mean, there is another example of, like, just a little old lady who's, like, <laughs> 60, 70 years old uh, really putting her energy into it. And, yeah, she can convince herself that it's totally fine to keep all this money. It's a gift from the Lord. Yeah. So it's it's hard to know who to give. It's hard to know how to help. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the biggest problem is that corruption is so rife everywhere that if you want to help in something like Puerto Rico or Haiti or Katrina or any of these things, like, who do you send even the food and water to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I always thought that you can give it to, uh, you know, local organizations like, like grassroots sort of uh, charities that are loading trucks up. Like we did a, uh, back in my radio days, we did, uh, there was a flood out in North Dakota. And we did it basically... A lot of it was done for promotional reasons. We wanted to look good doing it, and we wanted to seem like we were concerned, and that would be a nice reflection on us. Uh, but we set up a... Who's us? Uh, the radio station. In oh, right. Okay. Uh, it was called a Radio River Relief, and uh, it was actually my idea. My very first promotional idea, now that I think about it. There you go. But we set up... It actually went really well. We set up a semi-truck with a uh, grocery store, and we told people, go get food, go get water, whatever you want to bring to the truck. We'll throw on there, and we've got a driver set up, and he's going to take it and drop it off in Fargo. And so it was direct. We weren't taking money. We weren't going to take money at that point. We, I mean, they wanted to donate cash. They could do it some other through some other avenue. But giving people what they need is, I think, the best way to go if you really want to avoid that whole corruption thing. Because, like I said, they're not going to be paying their CEO, and nobody's going to be trying to embezzle Jif. Right. Yeah. You know, that's going to go someplace. At least it's going to be used. So, I don't know. I guess to tie this into hitching. I was trying to think of how to do that. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the amount of times that we got in, that I got into cars and heard this frustration about what to do. It's, it's paralyzing. 
But everybody, I feel like everyone had a sense of wanting to fix something. <laughs> you know, you mean socially. Yeah, I mean, like there was always an argument against the government, whether they were liberals arguing against the Republican Congress or they were, uh, you know, conservatives arguing against the Obama presidency. Yeah, I got a lot of fuck them all. Yeah, exactly. That's all I got. I don't think I got anybody who wasn't fuck them all. I can't think. I of got anyone. very few. And under that seemed like a, a deep frustration of beyond like, well, what do you do about the government? I mean, government's always been a pretty easy target to complain about anyways. But what do you do about what's going on in the world these days, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Oftentimes that wasn't what it, we actually talked about, but there just seemed to be, and maybe I was projecting it into there, I don't know, but it just seemed to be an undertone of frustration yeah. and paralyzing. And I don't know, I feel like that's what we're seeing more on the surface today. That was prevalent. 2008, and, and particularly, when, I don't know particularly is the right word, but it also flared its head in '09 when you and I were running around together. I, I always like to tell people that I, I saw tea baggery before the tea party. I mean, it was it was obvious to me that something was happening, that something very powerful was gurgling underneath the surface, and it wasn't being addressed, and it wasn't getting enough attention. You know, there was a different narrative that I was seeing and hearing from people all across the country. There, it wasn't even being paid attention to through the electric media, electronic media. I don't think it has been until like 2016. Well, I, I think 2017. Now the Tea Party manifested. I it manifested True. in 2010 when the Tea Party sort of came came out and uh, they didn't articulate it properly. They were you know it was, it was co-opted by the I don't know if the the Tea Party co-opted the Republicans or vice versa, but it was using the rhetoric I was hearing on the road. But I don't necessarily think that it really really addressed it. But there was a lot of. Everything is fucked up. These politicians are corrupt. They don't give a fuck about me. They're all bought and paid for. And there was also an element, though, of it was. I, I guess maybe it's the the embryonic uh, manifestation of this divisiveness we've got now, where these folks all thought they were independent. They all thought that they were running down the middle. That they were seeing things, you know, from this independent perspective. And anybody who supported or voted for Obama was an evil socialist. You see, you see right. what I mean? It's like there was there was still the tribalism there, but right. they sort of saw themselves as separated from it, mm-hmm. like they're off in an island somewhere. You know, but were they? <laughs> you know, it was really interesting, and I I sensed it all the way through there. That something was happening. I didn't. I couldn't. Obviously, I'm not a prophet. I'm not really Todd Stradamus. I just play one on you know a podcast. Mm-hmm. But something was right. happening. I think that the initially it was the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. I think that was what was sort of the energy. I think is the both yeah the both of us were sensing that. I think that that energy uh, sort of gave birth to that and was the yeah the initial sperm of Trumpism. <laughs> yeah, well, no, and I felt that too. That that um, yeah, that politicians are bought and paid for. That's something I still I, feel. I subscribe obvious. to that. That's not even a conspiracy theory. No, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these things, <laughs> and the aren't. sky is blue. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, these aren't like wild theories coming no. out of the left fo- left field anymore. No, which they used to be. I don't know. I guess if you talked about this, if I remember right, talking about this in the '90s, you were considered maybe extreme left or extreme right or or extreme conspiracy or something. If you were, it was kind of accepted that politicians were corrupt ish, mm-hmm. but that was fine. Yeah, back then, I, you know I what I mean. I, I wasn't po- political at all. In well, the I 90s. wasn't either. And it's—I I seem to remember, and maybe I'm misremembering—that if you talk politics at all, you just got looked at funny. 
Like, what the fuck are you bringing this up for? I don't want to talk about this shit. That's changed, though. Mm -hmm. Like, every single human being now, we're not going to go down this road very far. We're going to get back to the the track. Right, yeah. Like, everybody has a political opinion now. And 20 years ago, the people that that want to talk politics with me now, if I would have brought any of this up, they'd have probably thrown their beer at me. Right. I'm a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't talking politics 20 years ago, and what the fuck am I doing? (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't understand that. It's like people, have, they have an idea that they've, they're getting involved, but I, I, I don't want to go too far down this. I think I'll, I'll, this may be a, a nexus or a, a seed for another podcast because, yeah, it's it's everywhere. You can't you can't get away from it and avoid it now. Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to get into it as like a topic, like the corruption in politics and all yeah, that I, stuff. It, I know. That's not something I that, feel myself walking that way and I wanted to kind of no I guess I wanted to bring it in because that was really common in the conversations on the rides you know and it was always I don't know everyone seemed to like connect with me it wasn't like there weren't too many people there were I can only think of one guy who didn't want to talk to me or or like seemed annoyed that I was in his car yeah Um, weird yeah I don't know (laughs) it's happened a couple times yeah it was a it was a preacher yeah (laughs) Yeah, too. Yeah, it's the uh, the idea that uh, they're doing this because Jesus wants them to, and they really don't want to. They're only here because you know. Yeah, the, I got out of that car. Yeah. after a little while, that happened to me in uh, relatively <laughs> recently. It was the the trip in thirteen. Got dropped off in Cumberland and hitched out to to Albuquerque to get home, and I was hungover and stopped off in uh, Knoxville to talk to my stand up friend. Mm-hmm. He only took me like a mile and a half. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why he even did. Right. I get in the car. He's like, put your bag back there. You're going to shit right there. And then he just got in, turned up his Jesus on the radio. And it was so clear he didn't want me in that car. Yeah. And I was Maybe like, Maybe so you could hear his Jesus was why he picked you up. Yeah. I think that's it exactly. I think he felt obligated by his, uh, his, his religion. Mm-hmm. And he felt the need to expose me to the, to the word. Right. And that's it. Yeah. When, when we were talking before on the other two podcasts, did I tell that story about the the dude who picked me up in Wyoming? Because that's a great example of it. The one who picked me up, um, I can never remember the name of that town. The one that's in the like southwestern corner over by Utah. Evansville or Evanstown. Evan, oh, what is that? I don't know. Anyway, unimportant. Southwest Wyoming. Right. So I was just sitting there at a truck stop and uh, just sitting out there with my bag. I wasn't even hitching. I mean, I was, but I wasn't throwing my thumb out or anything. I was just, I think, I don't know, eating something or just sitting there resting. And a guy, kind of cowboyish, real Wyoming sort, walked past, didn't really even look at me, just kind of like waved his hand of like a, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he, he had a distinct impression he thought I was, especially I was keeping clean cut. and Didn't smell like pee. I don't think so, not at that point. Um, yeah, but I think he... I had the distinct impression he thought I was a guy who was going to a job and just needed a way to get there. So I get in the car with him, and uh, and we start pulling out, and he's like, oh. So, and I had said I was going to Rawlings, which was the next exit down, which is in Wyoming. That's like a good 30 miles, and um, 25 or something like that. And I would always say that with that option of, like, whether you can, you know, if you get along, great, then you can ride farther. If you don't get along, you can get out quickly and it's an option for them too anyways he asked me what's going on in Rawlings and I was like oh well kind of just trying to get to my dad who's over in Massachusetts and his birthday's coming up and it comes out through conversation 
pretty quickly that I'm hitching around not because I'm destitute but because I want to and uh, it's a choice thing and he just wasn't really into that and so he goes oh well okay well I'm gonna bore you to death and I've been listening to this tape and he popped a history channel tape in yeah oh yeah you did tell the story yeah 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 yeah. okay yeah and just that switch that happened you know started talking about uh, yeah yeah, it's like about jackson and uh and how jackson took out the central banks and i start oh yeah this is a great part and you know and i start unloading the story ahead of the tape and we get talking about and i was like oh this is kind of what i see is going on what needs to happen now we need to get rid of the fed yeah right you know get our sovereignty of the banks back yeah and we just had a great conversation. He'd drive me all the way down to Cheyenne or, Lar- or Laramie. And, um, yeah, uh, and just seeing his, you know, he was a, a Tea Party guy. He he was somebody saying, like, oh, yeah, I think Palin's going to surprise us all in uh, 2012 and get the presidency. And But, yeah, it was an interesting conversation circling around the, the, the corruption. and the, And we connected just fine. I, that was a, a huge theme in um, in 2008. I, there was this uh, this woman that took me to uh, San Luis Obispo from right around Santa Barbara. I think it was Santa Barbara actually, up sure. Highway One. And she was just going to take me a little ways. And she just I got in the car and she just started. She wasn't real bright. She wasn't very articulate, but she was passionate. And probably two thirds of the way to San Luis Obispo, I just sat in the seat and listened to her rant uh-huh. about politics, mm-hmm. about just the how shitty. Uh, politicians were and all this. And I, there's a skill too that when you get in a car, you let them lead. Mm-hmm. If you want to stay in the car and you want to keep things copacetic, you just sort of, if you disagree with what they're saying, you got a choice. You don't have to keep your mouth shut, but I've found it's better mm-hmm. uh, to just sit there and nod. You don't have to fully agree with everything, but just let them, let them kind of go. And there's a, there's sort of a dance that you have to do with people mm-hmm. once you sit down in that vehicle. And uh, that was that was how I did it with her. I was just like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and just let her go. And I didn't, you know, I was just like, okay, I was ready to get out of the car. She wanted to take me all the way to like San Jose. Oh, really? Yeah, she was going to San Francisco, I think. Huh. And I was like, nah, I think I've had enough. I got to find a place to camp. You could just let me out at San Luis Obispo. And she took me to Burger King. Insisted that I let her buy me Burger King. I was like, uh-huh. no, I got money. I'm going to go in and get caught. No, no, I'm going to take you. What do you want? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, it was uh, all the way through that first uh, first couple that first year. It was it was really surprising how often, and I wrote about it in the blog uh, several places. I think that no matter when I got in, there was always this sense of just anger, mm-hmm. just rage. Well, and I mean, arguably, that's partly why we left, or why I left. With you, you were already out. Yeah, you know. Remember in '08, I was living in Denver. You're popping in and out of my my house the friary and we were having all those conversations we were talking a lot about spiritual stuff too about like like what is this like weird synchronicity that's happening why is this you know and how i had experienced that on my walk cross country and and um so that was obviously a major but remember i was wrestling with i wanted to break this cycle that i felt i had of saving up a bunch of money going off and traveling and landing with, uh, you know, maybe $1,000 saved up thinking that's enough to get an apartment, forgetting every time, forgetting about the deposit that would be needed, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and the fact that I needed to get a job and wait two weeks before I got the first paycheck. And, uh, you know, I would dig myself into debt. And then while 
I'm working my ass off trying to get out of debt. You know, I'm throwing like four or five hundred dollars a month on the credit card to just get that sucker knocked down. Yeah. I can pay down a healthy debt within like four or five months. Right. But in that time, I'd feel so trapped by that debt that I'd just, you know, I'd want to bust the right the fuck back out again. And so then once the credit card's gone and I'm back to zero, then I chuck the same amount. I keep chucking that money into a savings account. And that's what I'd leave on next time. And you come along and you, you're saying, oh, you got to come out here and explore this with me and, 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 you know, see all this. And I'm like, no, I want to like break this pattern. You know, I don't want to be running off again. And then, uh, and I was, remember I was talking about opening a coffee shop at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You had a business plan. Yeah. I had a business plan going. And then in September was the crash. I was already leaning towards. Oh yeah. I was, I was resisting it, but I was already leaning towards leaving, but the crash happened and that was a more logical sense of, of like probably not a good idea to Open start a, a small yeah. business in the beginning of the Great Recession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, and we started diving more into the into the synchronicity and energy flow stuff. And yeah, there was something really powerful going on then. And uh, you know, we I guess maybe this is going to bring us back on track, uh, get yeah. us back on the right uh, road here because when I I, I noticed the uh, the synchronicity stuff was a, was a really powerful thing. And this is I mean. Call it what you want. You can call it spirituality. It's fine. It's 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 theological. There's no concrete evidence for it. No, it's <laughs> it is theology. It's yeah. not religion. I'm not going to necessarily let myself be caught, you know, lumping it into the spirituality thing. It is either, but it is. It's it's like the universe is guiding you. Yeah. The universe is letting things be put in front of you and make these random connections that mean something down the road later on, either for you or someone else. And it was really powerful shit. And I noticed it when I started the Carney stuff. Mm. I'm, I won't get into the whole thing there. Maybe I'll post a link or something that'll write up. But I left Odessa, and went to New Orleans again, mm. and ran into a couple of people there and. It was the same thing, you know. It's like there's these people that you just happen to run into that are walking the same path as you in some sense. And you have this ability to connect with them Mm -hmm. and interact and offer and gain insight from their experience and where they're at. And and if you look at it through a long enough timeline, even a short timeline, in some instances like Andre, that you can't imagine Mm -hmm. this being a random chance. Right. Just it just doesn't seem possible at the time, and in 2008, and probably I think it went oh nine yeah a great deal in oh nine as well yeah yeah until Port Townsend, that was the guiding thing mm-hmm. I think it was that you're I'm being taken somewhere I don't know where the fuck I'm going yeah it stayed that way for me yeah well past oh nine I mean today today still I'm still following that yeah I mean that's another reason why I'm going home <laughs> fair enough yeah yeah. But uh, whether it's real or not, that is what you know. That's part of why I'm going home. But in 08, though, we were both pretty pretty locked into that. Uh-huh. Really, not pretty locked into. It. We were fucking locked into it. And I I remember um, when you talk about the resistance thing, I just have to throw this in there since you brought it up. When I was out in California, and that would have been June, and uh-huh. I was in Santa Barbara, and had just gotten off the Amtrak, and I was couch surfing, and I was out on the beach, and you called me one night, and I remember getting off the phone. And then I called my girlfriend, mm-hmm. and like he's coming, 
He's, he, he, he won't tell you. He won't admit it. He's no. fucking coming. I got my journal out. He's fucking coming. I know he is. Yeah. No, <laughs> but was, it was really, yeah, it, was, it seemed apparent at the time. You were. I get real stubborn in sure. my own head. Yeah, you don't want to be told. <laughs> no. But, yeah, it, was, it seemed pretty clear. And then, then this was June, and this was before the crash. But it, um, I think that when the, yeah, when the crash hit, that was, I mean, that had a big effect on me, too. Well, and that pattern is real. Yeah. I mean, that pattern was a real threat to me, and that was, my sister was the one who helped me out with that when when I was, after the crash had happened. I think this was, like, October or November or something like that. And I was just wrestling with this idea. I was still in debt. I was still paying things down. And so I knew I still had this mental constraint that makes me want to, like, bolt out the door. And so I was talking with, with my sister and saying... You know, I don't know what the right thing to do is. I don't know if like, I don't know if it's, if it feels right to go follow this travel thing, but I know I'm like, you know, I'm like a dog on a leash, just like trying to get away and I don't want to feed into that anymore, but it feels right. And then the flip side of it is I want community. I want roots. I want to stay, I want to be able to stay somewhere and I don't seem capable of it. And she looked at me. Well, this was on the phone. So she she just says, you know, you're looking at this all backwards. It's not a matter of right or wrong. You just choose one of them and you commit to it. That was powerful to me. And and what I I didn't understand was how do you commit to travel without just becoming nomadic completely? But that obviously was the, the end choice for me. It was finding the Edgar Cayce book that really turned the tide for me of, um, of recognizing, okay, I commit to travel. I'm following this, whatever this intuitive gut energy pull, whatever it is. I had a strong sense then that that would lead me to my community where I wanted to stay, but I needed to get past the, I'm traveling until I'm homesick or I'm traveling until I just don't want to or run out of money or something like that. And that was part of that catalyst for, for setting myself up to figure out how to get around money. It just didn't work out the way I wanted it, the way I thought it would. I mean, remember, that was when I got real comfortable leaving the house with nothing. Remember? I mean, I yeah, yeah. I left Denver in August of 2009. Well, we talked about that in the other episode. Yeah, I mean, with you, $28, three days later yeah. I had $98, and then I had... Yeah, you, you felt know. like if you committed to not having anything and being comfortable and trusting and have faith mm-hmm. enough to leave with nothing, that it would show up. Yeah, it was in that year that I... I defined for myself what faith is. And so, yeah, I definitely would describe it as faith. I just don't agree with the idea of blind faith. I think you need to have the experience behind you to understand what you're putting your faith into, yeah. not just what somebody else tells you to put your faith into. Yeah, this is where I have a problem. And it's not not a conflict uh-huh. with you or in anything you just said because I guess if I were being honest about this, mm-hmm. and maybe I'd had a few drinks, yep. and maybe some mushrooms, and I mean, we were around a campfire somewhere, <laughs> uh, I would say that I saw it. Yeah, I did. I can't. I can't say I didn't. I can't. I can't sit here and and, and discount Dennis. Uh-huh. I can't sit. I sure as fuck can't sit here and discount everything that happened the day I met Andre and the, the few days after that, mm-hmm. and the lead up to Port Townsend. What else was there? 
Oh, the, the, there's a slew of them. The preachers in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. You know the way that went, and what I found, and what I was able to glean out of that. You know, after sitting down and thinking about it, and distilling it down, trying to articulate it a little bit, and the things that came out of those experiences, these random fucking mm-hmm. experiences, are fucking powerful. Mm-hmm. They're life altering if you pay attention to them, and you're not just sitting here with your thumb in your butt. Oh, I'm at a fucking church today. <laughs> and you hang on to them when you don't feel them anymore. Well, that's the thing. That's where I have a problem because mm-hmm. my hypocrisy alarm goes off because I've talked a lot, I talk a lot about truth and trying to stay grounded and trying to see reality and then the way things are. And I talked about the abyss in one of these episodes. You mm-hmm. didn't listen to it, but it's uh, when I was <laughs> uh, talking about trying to, it was the, the beginning of the coyote thing. Mm-hmm. If you're going to commit to truth, you have to commit to it within yourself as well. You can't just look for truth in other people. You've also got to turn that mirror around in yourself, and you've got to start analyzing yourself. Mm-hmm. And the abyss came when I did that, and I started looking at the—am I, am I manufacturing this shit? Mm-hmm. Is this just some—are these experiences, am I putting the value on them because I want them to fit into my adopted theology? Mm-hmm. And I could not answer that positively. I could not sit here and say, no, I'm not doing that. And I couldn't do. I couldn't say that with any personal internal conviction. Mm-hmm. And I still can't. But shit happened. Right. No, I, I wouldn't be able to answer that either. You know, if I wanted to dig down and find a concrete bottom, I don't think there is one. Yeah. I've just chosen to accept those experiences as like you're you're saying. Yeah. Shit happened. Yeah. We recognized it. It became predictable to a point in a sense. Remember, I was leaving Denver. Saying, yeah, I'm going to go to England later in the year. I don't know where the money's coming from, and I'm heading west. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. Lorelai's like, well, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I think the money's in in Washington. Sure enough, you know, I got that coffee shop job for like three weeks or whatever, and got the exact amount of money that I needed to get the ticket to go to England. And, you know, all of that's super arguable. I recognize that. But, just the consistency in which that seemed to happen when I was in a certain mindset. Yeah. I don't know. For me, there's a whole myriad of different takes I could take on that. That one makes the most sense to me. And so I stick with it until it's disproven. I don't, yeah. I don't feel the and need to really, dig, honestly, dig below the silt. Yeah. For where we're going today, that doesn't matter. None of that really. I mean, the, the belief stuff, it does matter in the narrative. Yeah. But trying to figure out if it's right, wrong, where it's at, it really doesn't matter because it's no. it's like what it was is it's a vehicle, and we talked about this before. It gives you the um, what was it you called you you came up with a phrase? It gives you the the what? ability to just set off and do things that other people wouldn't do because you've got the the faith right and the belief system in place mm-hmm. that will <clears throat> give you the courage or the oh, there's a word it starts with an A the um, I can't think of it. Just the balls. The the willingness to, 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 to strap on a backpack right. and go to Washington knowing right. there's money out there. Well, and that's the thing. I think you have to have a safety net when you're, when you're doing that stuff. Audacity. Audacity. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Sorry. And I think to do that, you have to have a safety net and whether or not that safety net is real or not. Psychological, right. Yeah, fake you it know, to make it. It's, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you need the illusion of a safety net. Yeah. No safety net's real. Right. You know, you can you can have, like, a wealthy mother who will bail you out. Right. You know, mm-hmm. great. That's right. pretty tangible and real. Mm-hmm. But it's 
it's not foolproof that, you know, you could have another stock market crash. You could have something happen with somebody else, you know, um, that affects that inflow. You could have your own cash and have that be stolen from you. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there is no real safety net ever. Yeah, there's no certainties. I guess going back to the uh, the audacity and the faith thing, there's a, I forget where the uh, the quote came from, but jump and the net will appear. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. That was kind of the, the sense of it. That to me, I didn't really ever feel like when I was in that, that I needed that faith. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I didn't need something concrete and tangible down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just mm-hmm. needed to know that it would be there. You, mm-hmm. you, you know, does that make sense? I mean, there, there's a distinction there. You implied that you thought the money was in Washington. For me, it was more of it's out there somewhere. Yeah. And I don't know where. I don't know what direction it's in. Right. Every time I leave, the, the chain of events lands me somewhere that I have no idea. I, I, I have no concept of where it is. It's why I aim for Maine and end up in Boise. Right. No, and I, when I, you know, when I say that, that, that was the only time I felt like I felt a specific direction as to where this was coming from, this trip to England, which I didn't really understand either. But that was like that whole thing, that whole month, two, two months was a weird string. I remember that was going to see that, uh, that hypnosis guy. Yeah, you were doing some, yeah. I was going through some weird shit. Yeah, I thought that was all, (laughs) no, it worked out. I mean, it just, it, it it just seemed like, whoa, Mm -hmm. you're doing some pretty intense stuff. Some eclectic Mm -hmm. activity. Sweat, you went to a whaling, the whaling ritual. That was in April. Yeah, that's 2010. Yeah, that was April 2010. This was, September of 09 was pretty intense um, with that kind of stuff. Uh, I was getting weird flashes (laughs) <laughs> like, I don't know what you call them, waking dreams or no, wasn't even a dream. I just remember walking back from the coffee shop one time down this trail and the trail was lined with cypress trees. There was a little pond on the, on the right side and I'm just walking home and I just had this weird like flash. I didn't think it was real or anything. I could tell it wasn't, but it like for a half a second saw this like Roman cavalry running down this path and slicing me down as some like old peasant. <laughs> and it was just, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> and I don't know what that was, you know? I don't know if that was just me being tired and the and the things I was thinking about at the time. But and it just came out of nowhere. It didn't mean anything. <laughs> it just it struck me as kinda odd. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can see that. And then uh yeah, and then there was the hypnosis guy, and there was the whole thing with the with the money, the way that it showed up. I only planned on being there two weeks, ended up dragging out to three, and the people who gave me a ride out of there, they were one of them was a hypnosis hyp, hypnosis therapist, whatever regression therapy was what it was. It's the theory of uh, hypnotizing you so you can access like memories of previous lives, and the lady who gave me a ride home was like a retired you know person who did that and had quit because of some like intense experiences that she had had so we had that to talk about all the way down to portland that's a really random profession to run into right after you've experienced it for the first time (laughs) (laughs) you know speaking of random let's take a random break here yeah sounds good where'd you get that beer all right and we're back freshly fed freshly coffeed freshly peed Talking a little bit earlier about, I uh, got a little off track, I think, but uh, talking about hitchhiking. How I found you via the walk. Correct. Your blog. 
mm-hmm. and all that. And that sort of laid the foundation, led to some uh, bicycling, a bike tour mm-hmm. of sorts. The job ended, and uh, after I decided I was going to try to do radio one more time, didn't work out. Joined the Carney Troop, took off for a month, had a pretty good experience with that whole deal in March of 2008. It's going to be 10 years ago in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's bizarre. <laughs> Came back, and then April hit, and uh, I was already making trips, I think, to Denver about that point. Had made one. I helped you move into your apartment, I think, in March or April. Was this 08? Yeah. Yeah, I think March I moved into that. Yeah, and that sort of started these uh, I know semi- my, huh? I know my lease ended at the end of March in 09. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And then we started sitting there and uh, having these conversations uh, at the Friary there in Capitol Hill in Denver. And, yeah, I couldn't. I wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't like I, I had a job, couldn't find one, wasn't really looking to, you know, make a career as a manager at fucking Jiffy Lube. You wanted something with meaning. You weren't finding anything yeah. had meaning. Yeah, and that was the whole, the, the whole, I think, crux of, I think, where everything came from as far as radio went. The business was dying, and I was really not thrilled with going to Bubba's used car emporium, whoring myself out for $200 an hour, telling people to come down and buy a used Mazda. Yeah. You I know, think like, that's a good way to take this conversation. Yeah. Is, uh, the fundamentals of it. Work of meaning and yeah. looking for something. Well, that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, I guess we could take it all the way back to 04, just briefly. I was, I was working in radio down in Florida, part-time, hated the people I worked with, all but maybe two, and was going to work. Every day, feeling like a whore. Mm-hmm. A really low-paid, low-rent whore. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, but, you, but, but it's identity. You know, you, you've got a job. You've got a career. You build a career. Mm-hmm. You know? And the identity, my entire identity was tied up in who I was and what I was doing for a living and how I was making money. That's how I saw people. That's how people I thought people saw me, and they did. Mm-hmm. And that works to a point. But you adapt. Well, and that, that prostitution is built into the institution. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I was doing the same thing in film. Yeah. I quit film and did the walk a year later because I didn't like what I was doing in film. Yeah. You know, I didn't like the people I was I was meeting the higher up I went. I, right. I mean, you know, in retrospect, I realized, okay, maybe I could have stayed with the no income kind of mm-hmm. running around gorilla shooting, doing, <laughs> you know, doing fun projects with my friends. That yeah. was what I really enjoyed. Yeah. I really liked working on a crew. But then, the, you know, I start getting into doing commercials and TV pilots right. and, and working with, like, you know, B-list actors who have a big ego about themselves, you know. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, you know, what why? am I doing? And, and and why am I doing it? And where am I going with it? And, yeah, so, I mean, in 01, I quit film. Yeah. Had already had a little experience working in coffee shops, so I just dropped into that to you know, pay the bills until I figured out what career I was going to get into next. And the walk crapped up about right. yeah, there's, nine so there's months into that. A, a huge element for me, and <clears throat> we may have talked about this a lot on your couch, is freedom. Like, you get one life. Mm-hmm. You This is it, mm-hmm. you know. Well, you get, I guess. <laughs> you do what you room. like with it. Yeah, you're yeah. living, but, though. Either way, you're living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This life, we only get one of, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I've always uh, had a problem with not doing with it what I choose. Mm-hmm. And that may be your responsibility. Some people may take that in different ways. But this is it, man. How are you going to live it? Mm-hmm. That's the one thing I kept asking myself. And if I, I was miserable going to work every fucking day. I had a good job. I got my feet kicked up right now on a big-ass desk, a mm-hmm. couple of microphones, and I'm having a conversation with my friend. 
This is not that much different than the radio job was, except I had to sell Bubba's used fucking Mazdas. Right. Right. And I had to play really, you know, the, the, the same four Led Zeppelin songs, it seemed like, every every show. But it wasn't a bad gig. Right. It, I wasn't hurling, you know, sheetrock. This is kind of a good teaser yeah. into your future podcast that you've been talking about. Let's not go there just yet. <laughs> no, uh, but I'm saying <laughs> yeah. we're still looking for meaning. We're still looking exactly. for something know. that's fulfilling. You know? Yeah, and how do you want to live your life in a way? You know, like um, my sister used to say a lot that you could either be happy with, with what you're doing and make yourself happy with right. it, or you change what you're doing. That's true. How often do you want to change everything? I mean, I change my life direction probably every five five years, I'd say. Yeah. You know, five years ago, I was just getting into the Hoff. Mm. in Peru. Five years before that, we were getting ready to go hitching. Five years before that, I was yeah. wandering Mine seems lost. to be about every eight or ten. Yeah. It seems like. Uh, I got into radio out of desperation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was growing up in, in Hillsdale. Right. And I was on the basically the factory circuit down there. You mm-hmm. know, you go into work for a while, you get sick of it, you don't show up a few days, you go back to the temp office, you got another factory job, you got enough money to get drunk this weekend and hopefully get laid and, uh, you know, hate your life again come Monday. Right. And I, had I stayed there, I've said this a hundred times, I'd be dead by now. I would have drank myself to death. I, there's no way I would have lived into my 40s, and I don't you'd think. you'd probably be happy to be dead. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no question about that. And, and so, then, you know, when I, when I sit here and I complain about radio, there is a sense that there's a, a, a almost a disconnected disingenuousness about it because it wasn't a bad way to make a living. Mm-hmm. But I figured out at some point that there's got to be some purpose to something, to what I'm doing. It can't just be going into work mm-hmm. to get a paycheck, to go home, to sit on a couch, watch Friends, and pay the fucking cable bill and go back, wash, rinse, repeat. There's got to be more to it than that. Right, and I think the challenge is getting into like talking about what we're talking about, where, yeah. you, where you break away is I think there's a pendulum swing in there. And I've seen a lot of people get lost in that pendulum swing as well, where you're like, you know what, fuck it all, it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, none yeah. of this means anything. And then you swing to the other side where you're just a complete irresponsible wreck, you know, well, and you end up Kerouac fucking uh, people over. <laughs> I had to throw that in Yeah, there. he hates Kerouac. <laughs> I like down the road. But yeah, there's, there's a real thing to that. And the one thing that you realize is that you can't live without money, you know, and that was the the adventure mm. man, survivor man shit that that I was going through. I think probably late '07, early '08, before I took off, just a couple of months beforehand, I was out in, in New Mexico playing around in the backyard trying to figure out how to make shelters. I had I had bought this. I remember the SAS uh, survival guide I bought yeah. that was going to teach me how to snare rabbits. Yeah, <laughs> and all this. And so I'm, I'm I'm basically taking the Chris McCandless course and trying to figure out how to live without money. Well, and he wasn't very good at it either. Nobody's ever been any good at it. Yeah. Nobody is. You can't do it. Right. In this in this society, you can't do it without being a criminal. And it didn't take me long to figure that out. Another point, you, you make a really good point on that pendulum swing, is you either are overly structured mm-hmm. without a sense of purpose a lot of times, painting with a broad brush, but a lot of times people are. Mm-hmm. I was. Or you swing all the way over here with no structure whatsoever. You found some avenue to some semblance of freedom. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have any idea what to do with it. I mean, freedom's a double-edged sword right. because you, you you can literally, literally and metaphorically find yourself at a crossroads with your <laughs> dick in your hand. Uh, which way do I go? Did you pull your dick out when you were at a crossroads? 
Not publicly. It was usually <laughs> the abandoned ones. But what I did pull out, remember the <clears throat> dice I had, because I, I'm so yeah. indecisive. When it, when you have too many choices, mm-hmm. and you can do pretty much anything you want with your life, and you don't have a clear path and a clear direction on which way to go, if you don't have that shining city on the hill to walk toward, freedom is a burden. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have any... You, you can just get caught with your head spinning trying to figure out which way to go and go nowhere. Yeah, it's, you have no reference point. None whatsoever. And that's that I experience that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, just more in the literal sense of like, where am I going to go? But also in the abstract sense of what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Right. Yeah. And that was, I think, the filler that we were talking about earlier, the, the theology stuff and the, the spirituality and the philosophy end of it. I think that helps with that filler mm-hmm. because it takes away the need to perfectly intellectualize and articulate everything, where you yeah. can just sort of go with the operating system a little bit and let that guide you. And either way you go, as you and I both learned, mm. it doesn't matter where you go. I won't speak for you. I'm going to speak for me. I, I'm mm-hmm. not going to say both of us learned this, but I've learned that the, the destination means nothing. It's the point between here and wherever you wind up. That's where life happens. That's where, especially in the traveling, especially the hitchhiking, mm. is that... If you're open to it and you're accessible and you're able to um, sort of connect with people on their terms, mm. not always on your terms, but on their terms, you're going to find these things. And they're going to crop up all the time. I think maybe that's some of the stuff that we thought was synchronicity and mm-hmm. the, the, you know, maybe the universe guiding us or whatever it was. But those things are, I think they're everywhere. I don't think it's, I don't think it's random choice. I think there are that many out there. Right. You just hit them. That you just run into them all the fucking time. Maybe. My sister also gave me some other good advice that I thought was, was really relevant to that freedom idea of uh, those points of transition of like real open transition, like what you and I are at right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're the most frightening because you're at your most powerful because yeah. you can go in any direction that you want. A good way to put and, it. And that's what's yeah. terrifying about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have no reference. You have no con- no one to consult, no one to kind no. of get and, advice from that, that means anything to you. And you're also beholden to nothing. I mean, it is. It's a true sense <clears throat> of power. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that yeah, you're right. That's terrifying mm-hmm. because there's consequences. You know, you have power. There's consequences. You can make uh, – we, we are literally right now. Mm-hmm. I'm back in Michigan for four days. Life is a complete jumbled. I'm not even going to call. I'm not going to call it a mess, mm-hmm. but it's wide the fuck open. Mm-hmm. We can do anything, right? Anything. That's great. But those decisions, when you have that sort of control and that that opportunity, mm-hmm. it can be overwhelming because they're. I mean, you're you're taking the Titanic, and you're picking it up and you're turning it 90 to fucking degrees. You don't have to steer it anymore, right? <laughs> you you kind of have that superhuman strength to really alter the course of your life in really dramatic significant ways and do it instantaneously mm-hmm. well and everything's unknown at that point yeah you know exactly that's, that's the fear and you can get yourself caught into that feedback loop that mm-hmm. internal narrative feedback loop if you oh if i do this and it's the wrong thing and then oh, blah 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 right I'm notorious for that right as you've seen well and a lot of that is like yeah once you start stepping in a direction that you can say is a direction whether it is or isn't then then you start freaking, yeah, you start freaking out about like, oh, now yeah. I've started down this path. Is this the right path? Should I go on the other yeah, one? Or? As soon as you step in a pothole, metaphorically, it's mm-hmm. like, am I on the wrong path? Right. Was I supposed to go the other way? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the problem, I think, with the uh, spirituality end of this, I think, from, uh, from my aspect, anyway. It, it's if you get caught up and you believe too heavily or too dogmatically in 
And I'm not challenging. This is just from my perspective. This yeah, isn't yeah, anything, no. anything. I'm not challenging anything not, you believe yeah. or not. But if you believe in science and you believe in help from the universe and you believe in these course-altering breadcrumbs that the universe lays down in front of you mm-hmm. and you start down a path you think you're supposed to go down and then things start to crop up and like bump you from the woods like they, knocking you off your feet a little they bit they do yeah. yeah they always do you can start to kind of oh fuck did i did i misread that was i supposed to go the other way is this a sign that i i, I went down I, t- I took a left when i was supposed to go right yeah it's a complete mind fuck but for, for me i guess uh, just to kind of address that from my perspective and my experiences is that's why I mentioned like following that identifying where your headspace is on that where Mm. you do feel connected and identifying that from what you want to be doing I don't want to go back to Springfield Massachusetts yeah you know I resisted that but I had just as strong uh, that pull to go to Peru that's exciting it's Peru it's not home it's South America it's the identity yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and then two years later I got that same pull to go back home which I hadn't been to in 20 years my answer was, no, no, I don't want to. And then six months later, I'm driving back there. Right, yeah. You know, and now I'm moving back there. Uh, I had no no interest in going back there. Yeah, <laughs> I right. I never saw that. And and there's been a number of things like that where I'm not just following the positive, you know, the, the this sounds awesome, I'm going to go do it kind of pull. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of like, I, I really don't want to do that, but it feels yeah. like that's the right way for me to be going. So, yeah, and I wouldn't say it's all roses. No. I guess to bring it back, uh, to get the hitchhiking stuff and, and, and as far as 2008 goes, that's kind of the place I think I was after the radio gig ended, and there was nothing there. There was Everything was just sort of like I didn't do it, mm-hmm. which is typically the way it goes, and it's the way it's gone this year. That's for damn sure. But uh, everything was sort of just taken off the table. The mm-hmm. job was taken. There wasn't anything for me to do as far as, you know, we're going to do a camera work or anything like that. There wasn't podcasting wasn't around then, so I wasn't going to, you know, distract myself with that. Mm-hmm. What else do I have to do? Everything was yanked. Right. And <laughs> there's this one thing that I've been talking about doing for four years, had a lot of fear surrounding it, a lot of like the, the what ifs and the mountains or the molehills that I think are mountains and everything's going to attack me. I'm going to starve. I'm going to get sick, you know, blah, 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 or hit by a car. And it's like, well, so right. what else do I got? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I may as well, I may as well do it. It still wasn't, wasn't that easy to do. And then, you know, we, I started making those trips up to your place mm-hmm. and the conversation started going and it was a constructive point in time. You know, we're talking about possibilities and ideas rather than, what could happen, what bad things might happen, that, mm-hmm. you know, when you get caught in that feedback loop in your own mind. And then, yeah, getting that out there, comparing the experiences that you had while you were walking, you know, mm-hmm. I had had taken, had some decent experiences with a bike trip, at least insights and things like that, so I could draw on that just a little bit. But, and then it comes to the point, May finally rolls around, it's like, I guess we should go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess I should go. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, I started looking at different routes and everything, and, and eventually, and one thing that Chris is really good about is that he's he's not much of a talker. When when decisions are come to, he does them, <laughs> and I will sit there and pontificate endlessly. And it got, I think it got to the point, probably that last second or last second or third week of May in mm-hmm. two thousand and eight. It's like, well, what are we gonna do? I'll drop you off. Okay. <laughs> is that how it went down? Pretty, I think so. Oh, it was pretty close to I that. I don't remember, yeah. It, it was getting to the point where we were talking about it so much, and the ideas were there. And there, we, I think it came to the point where it's just like, well, you're going to go? Right. Probably one of my couch back, too. Yeah, well, that, that probably had a lot to do with it. 
<laughs> but yeah, I took the uh, went back to Santa Fe. I think I drove the car back. Yeah, I got my stuff. Got two backpacks because mm-hmm. I hadn't decided on the first backpack yet. Drove the car back to Denver to leave it with him. Hung out. We made a trip to REI. Got the found the backpack on clearance. Mm-hmm. The one that I wound up using, the uh, Gregory. One night we make a couple of steaks because I think I'm going to be probably eating scraps out of the dumpster or something. <laughs> I don't know why, but we went and bought a steak, cooked it up. The next morning we're on the road. Right. Yeah, Denver to Jackson Lake State Park, which is right around Fort Morgan. Yeah, I think I dropped you off right before going to work. You did. You had your Dazbog shirt on. I yep. have a picture. It's a great picture. I don't know what <laughs> happened to that first flop he had of mine. But, yeah, and he drops me off, and I'm. it's like there's this that first moment. I don't know if you experienced this with a walk or not. You probably did the next year when you left. I pull the backpack out of the car, mm-hmm. set it down. I look around, and it's like, this shit's real. Mm-hmm. After all this fucking talk, I can smell Fort Morgan. You know, I can smell where I'm at. I can feel the heat on me. Mm-hmm. I can feel the weight of this overloaded backpack. <laughs> and this isn't a trial. He's going to get in that car here in a minute, and he's going to go away. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be standing here, and I've got to actually do this now. And it was exhilarating. The The rush, of the excitement, um, it wasn't even a fulfilled vision yet at that point. No, because I came back that night. Yeah, but it, <laughs> no, it, well, yeah, but I hadn't done anything at that point. But it was, I think it was the act of doing it rather mm-hmm. than talking about it. Like, yeah. like I, I had this phrase, abstraction to action, that I, I talked about a lot once upon a time. That was the, the, the moment and the surge of energy. The excitement, you're like a kid. Yeah. Or I was. And then, yeah, the uh, pick the backpack up. It's entirely too heavy. Talked about this before. It's like there's Clippers and there's Don Quixote in there. And it's right. it's kind of like the holding on to that initial idea, carrying a library at a, at a radio with me. Like, nope. <laughs> <Quarter> <laughs> Which mile. is just funny. You talk about <clears throat> carrying Don Quixote and, the, and that, how big of a mistake that was. All the way across my walk cross country, the books that I read were, um, I read Anna Karenina. Yeah. I had the Bible for a little while. Mm-hmm. I read Harry Potter 5. I don't know. There were all these, like, enormous books that I had no business yeah. carrying. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I couldn't read uh, Frankenstein or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Some little little thing. The one thing that I'm glad I had that I didn't need was the Don Quixote because I, I had left my phone. <laughs> Maybe the universe was toying with me. Mm-hmm. Jesus came down and pulled my phone out of my pocket and dropped it on the floor of the car. <laughs> so uh, I got to the campground, realized I didn't have my phone. I needed to get rid of all that shit anyway, so I had to go through this whole... This was long before... This was, yeah, 2008. There was, thankfully, a, uh, a pay phone there, and I had to use a debit card to make all sorts of phone calls and try to figure out your phone number because I didn't... It was in my phone. I didn't remember right. it. I had to figure out all this, and it wound up costing me like 30 bucks of my $50 a week budget <laughs> just to <laughs> get a hold of you so I could get my, pay, my, my cell phone back. The nice thing about having the Don Quixote book, I was I was at the end of it. I brought it thinking I was going to mail it home after I finished it, mm. and I had to sit there all day anyway, so I just finished. Neat little picture of me with a pencil in my mouth, and I'm sitting here just reading uh, until you got back, and then I could unload that 20 pounds of just extra bullshit right. and dump it in the car. But Which is good. I mean, like, that's Ingrid and I did that, like I said, on the walk. Yeah. First day, we had a dumpster in a post yeah. office. Yeah, and that turned into that useless, the useless shit epiphany that I, I went into in the first podcast here. It was literally, I mean, a proper use of the word. Mm-hmm. Ten minutes into the trip, into my very for into my traveling, mm-hmm. and it was one of the most powerful insights that I had is that you just get rid of the shit you don't need. The right. shit you don't need, the extra baggage, weights you down. 
It slows you down. Right. It distracts you from what you're doing. I, I used that analogy, and and you know, I started to apply that higher up, not just to traveling, but like the stuff that you waste cognitive energy on, mm. worry about, you know, signal to noise ratio, stuff like that. It, it applies quite high, and it was one of the first things I learned. Yeah, the no, first. I mean, that's what you're trying to get away from, right? I mean, <laughs> you're trying to get away from this useless shit shed it in some way yeah i mean the the meaningless job the the stuff like that yeah that's why i remember i started going smaller and smaller in backpacks right because i realized and this was another like became a metaphorical thing as well as a physical thing of the the smaller my container then the less that the less i'm hauling around with me yeah and so yeah that worked for backpacks it's also worked for just thinking in general right trying to figure out a better way to articulate that to, on the on that more like mental level but that's that's what i called it was the useless useless shit just yeah. get rid of anything you do not it's, it's thoroughian mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. your um you thoroughian it away thoroughian <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice <laughs> sorry yeah. um but no that's i think it's useful and um it applies to a lot of other things we're not going to get into today but that's that was i mean 10 minutes in mm-hmm. and it's still it, i never connected it and i always make the same mistake Every time I leave, it, mm-hmm. it's just I, it's my way. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that I will pack too much shit, and I will realize instantly what I do not need as soon as I start taking my first steps. Mm-hmm. This is too fucking heavy. This is burdening me down. Why am I carrying two hammocks again? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think yeah, that speaks to that whole like I guess the overall mission, if you want to call it that, of of trying to find you know what's going to make you happy and what's what's the uh, What's that meaning that you're after? And I and not trying not to fall into that, find that balance in the pendulum swing. And I still feel like like now with this return to to Massachusetts, you're returning to to Michigan. You know, like after this this experience of one having a really guided mission, walking across the country. Right. That yeah. was a point A, point B yep. kind of thing. I had a clock that was a bank account you know that was one way of doing it and then we had the hitchhiking where it was just like wide open floating around having you know loving that freedom but i wouldn't be able to go back to that now and not wouldn't be the same at all and then getting into peru in the hof where i had a structured life sort of but i built it had reversed the traveling. I still had Travelers the influx of people, mm-hmm. yeah, but I had the stability, and I could root somewhat there, but I was isolated in this foreign country. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, it's like taking these little bits, these nibs here and there of like, what do I enjoy here? What do I, you know, like I like a routine. I know that about myself. I go to the same fucking diner. Mm-hmm. I order the same thing off the menu. Yeah. I get the same drink at the bar. I like my comforts and my routine and I get horribly bored by myself because of it. Right. And, and so with walking and with the hitchhiking, that routine by its nature would change the existence around me. So mm-hmm. that would keep me from getting bored of it yeah new wallpaper every day exactly yeah so but i want community i want i want roots around me i want to be somewhere i'm I'm getting older i want to i'm not going to be doing this at 50 or 60 Uh, i want to have long-term friends that i'm not starting to make at 50 or 60 (laughs) you know right yeah (laughs) so and i learned through peru that the hostel and creating a way for interesting people that I'm going to click with that I like and seeing the, and, but, but beyond what I'm just liking, I guess attracting, 
that's the that's the tricky part that I'm still working out is how to attract various mind types, my personality types, yeah, without inundating myself with having to deal with. I mean, you're gonna have to deal with annoying people at some point, but yeah, but uh, not making that an institution, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You yeah. know, and and I don't know. I guess this is the thing that I'd always talk about in cars with people. This is obviously long before the hostel and all that stuff, but just talking with people about how they they would generally be first thing would be some sort of oh that's great you got this freedom i gotta go back to the grind or you know like talking about miserable lives yeah and always a you know that would be the first thing i'd engage them with was well, what do you want to be doing yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> you know yeah yeah and uh, and i think there's a balance in there of finding how to be being responsible i think is an important part of it being happy is an important part of it and being free to continue to explore because your interests are going to change and and that's i think through that kind of funnel is trying to figure out how it is i want to be designing and living my life and i think the hitch getting out and hitching and and meeting all those varieties of people and 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 exploring that freedom is kind of that was the crux of it i'd say when I left that day, I got to the campground, the phone came back, and blah, 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 and I finally got out on the road. I, I, I was headed toward Nebraska on my first ride into Fort Morgan and was there for two or three days, pinned down by the weather, and I was afraid to hitchhike. I was sitting at the on-ramp at the Conoco station there on I-76, I think it is. would just sit there on my backpack, and I'd be, like, real timid. I, would be, I didn't want to put my thumb on it. I didn't want to be asking for a ride and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Stupid shit that I really never got over. But I, I had ideas of going to, like, Nebraska, and I was I was thinking I was going to go up to the Dakotas, and I was probably going to end up somewhere around Portland. That was my idea. But I never got anywhere. I got pinned down by the, these these tornadoes and shit that were, what? Portland? Yeah, that was my original goal when I— Maine? No. Oregon. Oregon, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I know. I was going east yeah, yeah. to go west. I okay. always do. That's okay. <laughs> uh, but no, I was, I was sitting there, and the, the tornadoes came along. I went to this place called the Chara House, uh, which I think was my second night there. I had stealth camp the first night and got freaked out by some people who were probably 75 yards away. I thought they were going to see my yellow tent and come and kill me. Uh, and then I had to figure out a way to get away from these tornadoes. Went to a halfway house, basically for people getting out of prison, homeless shelter kind of place. I had to do <laughs> register and they had to do a background check on me and all that. But it was inside, decent place, and wound up sitting down with this guy who was... Um, run of the place, he was kind of babysitting. He was sort of the, I don't know, the, the guy in charge of all these folks who were staying there, about six of them. And uh, we set up until about midnight, a really religious guy, uh, talking about just life in mm-hmm. general. And he, he sort of started to set this theme of running into really interesting people that if you sit down with them and you look them in the face and you can have a legitimate conversation with them without preaching and without being preached to, you know, if you can interact mm-hmm. a little bit, of offering some really remarkable uh, insights from really unexpected places. And that first, second night, I guess, sort of set the theme for that. Mm-hmm. You know, he was telling me, I mean, <laughs> he was a religious guy. He was like, yeah, I think you were sent by God. I think you were touched by Jesus. And I looked at him, and I'm like, this my standard answer became, yeah, maybe, but you and I, we may be talking about the same things. We just use different terms. We just, we sort of express it differently. But I think maybe we might be on the same team. Mm-hmm. That was the, not the first, not the last time I heard that. You know, Pastor Snake out in North Carolina 
he basically said the same thing. It's like you've been touched. You're mm-hmm. you, you, this isn't you doing this. This this thing you feel this compulsion to do it. You've been touched by Jesus or right. something like that. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I got that a lot too. Yeah, but yeah. I and I was annoyed by it at first. Yeah, I was um, too. But then I learned that translator, like you're talking about. Yeah, you yeah. know, I had a great conversation with a guy from Roswell out to the Texas border. Yeah. Um, he's talking about God's will. I just adopted yeah. my vocabulary to, yeah, sure, God's will. Yeah. You know, like, Fate. what? I, <laughs> sure, I call it the universe. Yeah. I, I recognize yeah. what you're talking about the same thing, and I'll just use God. Yeah, right. You know, you can't really uh, be too forceful with that point because they think it's literal. But, well, and there's yeah. no point to. Yeah, exactly. You can have a, a decent conversation talking about fundamentalist, you know, fundamental stuff, basic, similar fundamental ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, without getting lost in the terminology and the phraseology. It's like insisting on having a, a conversation in English with a guy who only speaks Spanish. Pretty much. You yeah, know, yeah, I mean, let's it. just have the conversation. Yeah. doesn't matter what the words are that you use as long as you both understand them. If you're doing the translating, then you understand both. Yeah, the ideas transcend. Yeah. But that, that never ended with me. Uh, Dennis came along. He was the, for you folks, he's the, the guy who had uh, been blown up at an oil well, was supposed to die. Uh, he, he, they were going to be surprised. He went through so many surgeries. He, he had he was covered with pig cadaver skin, I think. Oh Jesus! For yeah. the skin grafts, he didn't have a nose, didn't have any ears, you know, just like little stumps of cartilage. And he was a guy who was just destroyed by how people saw him. They saw him as a monster, particularly like children mm-hmm. would uh, look at him and be terrified. He liked kids. He loved kids. And mm-hmm. they were just terrified of him. And he had lost himself in vodka. You know, that was the only way that he could really cope with what happened to him and how, you know, just sheer depression, misery, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and he'd gotten that, hadn't he gotten that way by, like, he was on fire running back into yeah. the... And he never told me that. That's one of the most interesting aspects of the story. I'll go into it a little bit. He uh, was working an oil well in Texas back, I think, in 1980. The oil well caught on fire and started spewing... Fucking like like a flamethrower, I guess, from mm-hmm. what I understand. He was caught on fire. Rather than stop, drop, and put himself out, he ran back to shut the valve off so mm-hmm. other people wouldn't get burnt up. Yeah, and that's how he got as fucked up as he was. He never told me that. Right. He that's interesting. Beyond yeah, to me that's beyond interesting. That says a lot about him. Mm-hmm, I think yeah. I had to learn that. I don't know how to approach this. I learned it in a newspaper story later on. And the reason that he was in the Denver Post was that we had ridden across the uh, the front range of the Rockies. He was getting drunk. I was sending out couch surfing requests. I had to get out of the truck because he was kind of creeping me out. He was getting a little dark. The, the longer he drank, the, the, the more dark he got. He was starting to get really black. Mm-hmm. Right. Finally found some couch surfers in, in Glenwood Springs, took me in. He went on his way, never saw him again. And uh, back home in Santa Fe... Uh, looking for baseball news. I used to work for the Colorado Rockies baseball team. I'm on the Denver Post website. Hey, what are the Rockies up to? Mm-hmm. And I see a story, a link, talking about how the uh, the governor of Colorado was going to uh, Montrose for a funeral for a cop killed in the line of duty. I'm like, oh, Montrose, that's where Dennis was from. I'm going to click on this. And I open it up, and yeah, it was uh, Dennis had been separated from his wife. He had gone back. She had a restraining order on him. He was out of the house. He was living in a hotel. He had a lot of money from the oil well. That's one thing that I, I should probably point out because I think it applies. He got a huge settlement from the oil company mm. uh, where he didn't have to work anymore. He was set for life. 
after that. So he's living in a hotel, drinking himself silly, apparently. She had the restraining order on him. He was drunk. He goes back to the house. Of course, she calls the police. Uh, he barricades himself in the garage at his or their house. The police didn't realize uh, that there were guns stashed throughout the garage. So they just think they're going in to extract a drunk guy. And so they blast through the, the garage door. Dennis is armed, and he starts shooting. And shoots three of the police officers, local cops, I think, mm-hmm. city cops, I think. Uh, shoots three of them, kills one of them, injures the other two, and then takes a handgun and uh, kills himself. And yeah. That's it. Dennis is no more. So, yeah, that was what I found when I went looking for Colorado Rockies baseball news. And... Um, it all made sense. And the thing that got me, I, I, I learned about the, there's no other way to put this. He was a hero. Yeah. He's on fire. Yeah. He's running back to help people. That's heroism. I challenge right. anybody to tell me it's not. That's to my the face. real definition yeah. of heroism. And he didn't tell me about it. <clears throat> he didn't, he never thought to add that to the narrative. Right. I, 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 I don't know how, I understand, you know, the, the reactionary thing because the, Denver Post article was just... I, I made the mistake of reading the comment section. And the just the reductionary thinking and the reactionary thinking of calling this guy a cop-killing monster and blah, blah, blah. He mm-hmm. should have been put out of his misery. He should have never left that oil well. He should have been killed, blah, blah. You never met the man. You never understood what the guy went through. Mm-hmm. What kind of seven depths of hell the guy went through after 1980. How tortured he was. Yeah. Now, does it excuse shooting cops? If you think that's what I'm saying, you're a fucking moron. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the fact that he went back and did that speaks a lot to him. And he, his life was out of control. He could not live without vodka. He was so miserable sober that despite his life falling apart, his marriage falling apart, his business was falling apart. He, was a, he picked me up that day. He was dropping a tractor off. He was delivering tractors mm-hmm. basically around Colorado, Utah, and all that, and had gotten into a wreck at some point, drunk, mm-hmm. and he was going to court. He was on his way to court. He was going to lose his CDL wow. uh, because, but he knew it. Yeah. You know, and it's just, there was so, so much depth to the guy. He wasn't a monster. He was, he, he just could not cope. I think he got to the point where his life was so out of control. He was drunk. He wasn't thinking. He went over to that house and it all unfolded. This is what, this is how I'm going out. Yeah. You know? And again, this is my first real ride. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm two days into that's this. A, that's a good way to start. Yeah, it, well, it took mm-hmm. it took a, a long time to for that to, to play out to actually right, see yeah. it. But that was like a year later, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, a little over, almost a year and a half. Yeah. But uh yeah, those No, but it speaks to that idea of that all these monster people that are out there, they're got stories behind them. Human beings. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and 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 all of us are and, and I think in hitching, that's what you discover. You know, you, you get to you get a one on one therapy session with somebody, you know, where you're just sitting there chatting with them. Yeah. And you know, and I had a couple of people who who seemed because people always ask, like, if what well, you know, do you ever get in a car and like something creepy happen or something like that? It's like, yeah, I mean, there were people that I sussed out where yeah. it didn't seem like, you know, seemed like maybe there was something going on it, just through talking with them. Mm-hmm. I could get it to a, a place where I felt okay about it and, right. and then got out you know but yeah. um but just like hearing them i well, think listening to people yeah two things the, th- the therapy session thing mm-hmm. is is a really good way to put it because hitchhikers they don't know us 
And if you're sitting on the side of the road or an exit ramp, and you're sitting on a backpack with your thumb in the air, they see someone who's disposable. Right. They see someone who they assume, through their own prejudice, however you want to label it, that you're just an outcast or a fringe on the fringe, and you don't really have a lot of social value. So people can pick you up, they can put you in their car, and they can tear down whatever social facades they would normally have up. They will. They you get a level of authenticity. You're in a confessional booth, kind of sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> uh, more often than not naked. It's just completely naked, mm-hmm. and they are not afraid or ashamed to be who they are in your presence because you do not matter. You're right. just some guy sitting on the side of the road, and that's that level of authenticity is so rare. And I've never figured out a way to really replicate that. Mm. Outside of maybe the the overinflated Facebook avatars, maybe there's a level to it in there that maybe maybe there's a correlation there. I don't think so. Mm. I think that getting in a car with someone. Well, I think face to face is important. Yeah, you know, I think that's what overshoots overshadows the Facebook avatar thing. Yeah, I think um, and being in a car, I think has a lot to do with it because one, it's their car. Yeah. You know, they're in an ownership position. They're in control. Mm-hmm. Um, like you say, you're just some guy on the, you're, you're clearly not from where you are, most likely. Right. You know, where you're being picked up at. Mm-hmm. And and I guess I want to throw this out there because when I'm listening to you say that, I could hear a lot of people hearing that as like malicious intent. What do you mean? Uh, just as a disposable human being that they're picking you up maliciously so that they can unload whatever they want on you. No, um, no I don't And like I wanted to clarify that that, no, I, I, don't, I don't think that's well, what I apologize if I gave that impression. But No, yeah. I, I was just hearing that as like a disposable person, but it's true. Um, you know, you're in the sense that they can unload whatever they're thinking, whatever they're yeah. dealing with, whatever their marital problems they're having, whatever yeah. issues they're having with their work or coworkers yeah. and things like that. I, I just, my brain went straight to that whole like... Uh, serial killers picking up hitchhikers to go kill them and it just no 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 it, no, no. it rose up that idea disposable of, of the, by disposable mm-hmm. i mean somebody they're going to pick up and get rid of yeah exactly you know and it's not somebody that really holds any social significance whatsoever you're a vagabond right so my opinion of what you say does not matter that's what i mean by disposable there's no right yeah and i just wanted to put that out there yeah, fair <laughs> enough. but yeah i think a lot of that also has to do with not just that you're in their car and and they're the ones in control, but I think also that they're moving, you know, you're moving somewhere, you're going somewhere. So that anytime I feel like anytime you travel, there's a little bit more, even if you're just commuting to work, there's like Mm -hmm. some vague hint of of freedom in there a little bit more than just being in your house or being in your job. Well, we talked about this on the way out here. There's a maybe driving down the road is almost meditative, that it does something psychologically to you where it can kind of just put you in this almost um, flow of uh, 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 stream of consciousness sort of state of mind yeah. where you can just talk mm-hmm. you know, and just be and think and interact. And then, I don't know, it seems yeah. to me, I, I have I have really good conversations when I'm in the car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Usually. Yeah. And, just and, uh, with people I know. And if you're with someone who can who you're going to get rid of and never going to be in your social circles. Great. You know, you just unload anything you're thinking about that you can't tell to anybody else. Yeah. I've seen, uh, I've seen really good and I've seen, I've seen blatant racism. Mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, people will just reach out. I don't know if this is really associated with that or not, but they'll reach under their seat and pull out a handgun. Oh, hey, really? Look at this. Yeah. I happen to you. Oh yeah. Actually that Texan preacher that gave us a ride out of slabs. Yeah. Yeah, he did that, it. I think. <laughs> Fucker. Yeah, we're, we're hitching <laughs> out of out of Nyland. We spent. Uh, yeah. We could probably get into Slab City a little bit too. That'll be fun. But we were <laughs> we were leaving there, 
Um, Slab City, if you don't know, is in Into the Wild. It's an old army base that's been scraped in the uh, desert of California out by the Salton Sea, and people squat there. So we're, we're there for, I guess, three or four days, however long it was, and we're, we're trying to hitchhike. We get down out of Nyland, and we got to, what was that other, Brawley? that sound right? I think we ended up out in Arizona, didn't we? Yeah, but we get, we got dropped off south of uh, oh, Nyland. I, I think don't it was, it remember might, any of the towns down yeah, there. It, might it was been, a bigger town. Yeah, it might have been Brawley. Anyway, we're sitting there, and uh, I don't know how long we wait, but we finally get a, a ride with a guy in a uh, uh, little pickup with a cab on it. And he had been staying at Slab City. He was a preacher. He was a minister of some sort from mm-hmm. Texas who was running at least guns yeah. out of there. And I think he was actually running pot or selling it, maybe trafficking a little bit. There was something to do with pot and guns that he that he was basing himself out of Slab City. And uh, <laughs> Chris is in the back. I took the front in this one because I, I found the guy interesting. So Chris is in the back, and there's two little dogs back there. There's like a really... <laughs> Well, one of them one's a little. Yeah, I know, but it was demure. It was like just like just this little. Yeah, it was like this six month old, like uh, it was a pit bull or a pit bull or boxer or something like so that. It was big, it was something decent sized, not huge, but decent sized. The other one's this little rat dog, little tiny <laughs> thing that's just like the alpha of the pair. And it was, I'm not kidding, I, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that the little dog was face-fucking the big dog. It was just humping this dog's face. The whole way. The whole way. I have video <laughs> of I still have video of that. That was hilarious. Oh, my God. I turn around, and I'm seeing this, and Chris is just like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing the whole way. I, I mean, that was hilarious. That was a great ride just for that. Yeah. But then we've got this guy. He's just this Texan preacher guy who's at least, uh, you know, selling guns or running guns or something out of Slab City. And we're driving in southern Arizona, or southern California, headed to Arizona. Border patrol's there. Yeah. And you got these border patrol checkpoints you have to stop at. And so he pulls into one, starts getting kind of lippy. Yeah, I'm an American citizen. What, you, what the hell? Do I look Mexican? No, remember he goes, do you, have, do you have any non-Americans in there? And he's like, yeah, I'm a Texan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I forgot that. And then he pulls out. And I'm, I'm sitting here just like, don't fuck with border patrol here. You know, I, I don't want yeah, just go. I'm saying this to myself. Mm-hmm. And he gets about, I don't know, 50 yards up the road. He leans, he looks at me, he leans under the seat. Hey, what do you think them motherfuckers would have thought of this if I'd pulled it out? And he pulls out a little fucking handgun of some sort. I'm just like, oh my fucking God. It's funny when the people, yeah, when like you get rides like that where yeah. they have to they have to show you what they're sneaking. Absolutely. Like I caught yeah. a ride with a guy down in Oregon. This is before pot was legal. And uh, and he drops me off. At this, we had a nice ride. He was some deadhead. And he drops me off at a rest stop for the end of the day. It's like a really nice place to camp. And he pulls out this giant bag of uh, pies. Like, I don't know how much it was, but it was one of those huge, like, sandwich bags. And he's like, hee, 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 take a picture (laughs) of me and put it up on Facebook. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I guess this was August of 08. Yeah, the last trip that I took in 2008 out in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I dropped off in uh, Raleigh, Durham. And no, this was actually in, where did they get me? They got me somewhere somewhere around Asheville. I can't remember exactly where the pickup was, but it was two young kids probably in their mid-20s, mid-late 20s. Mm. Something like that's not so young. They were either from Kentucky or coming back from Kentucky. I forget which. Either way, a couple of rednecks pounding Bud Light. I, drinking and driving is more prevalent than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. That I can tell you. These guys were just, I've, I've seen so many people that have coolers of beer in the back. And this Maybe it's because that's why they pick me up. Maybe they've had something to drink. Their inhibitions are a lot lower. Right. What the fuck? I'll pick this guy up. Right, yeah, maybe, yeah. So maybe my perception's Maybe anyway. a drinking partner. Huh? Yeah. But these guys, I'm in the back seat. I've got my backpack in the, in the, in the back cab. And you could tell they were a little nervous. 
you know, they were just a little, they weren't comfortable having me in the back seat behind them. Mm -hmm. And so the guy, I forget his name, he leans under his seat, uh, hey, you ever see one of these? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Once or twice. Yeah. Yeah, I've had those pulled out from under seats. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Puts it back and it dawned on me that that was an indicator. That was just like, don't fuck around. Right. I have this. And after he pulled that out and knew that I saw it, he was fine. It was yeah. just like everything was lifted. It's like, okay, he's not going to mess with me now. Yeah. Yeah, those guys were they were a trip. Somebody was pulled off the side of I-40. Yeah. In North Carolina, wherever it was, the guy rolls his window down. Take that nigger to jail. <laughs> just out of yeah, like oh my god, you yeah, I am down south, aren't I? Yeah, that's you should you should live in Mississippi. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you, I mean, you, you do see that a lot, though. You know, just people that are just um, well, they, they also start they to show off a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. in the, in the sense yeah. of being a confessional, they also they're yeah they're in like self promotion mode a little bit yeah <laughs> you know i think that's why they're flashing guns and yeah and showing their pot bags and yeah. yelling shit like that out the window yeah i've always wondered if they're kind of slightly impressed by the courage maybe they think it takes to do something like this so they want to show you just how yeah i'm pretty yeah. awesome myself <laughs> right yeah <laughs> nah, my, that could be i, I get know. that sense sometimes yeah it's uh that was really in, instantaneously i mean i i thought i was going to be doing a lot of walking when i left and uh it quickly, within a few days, changed. It was like, no, it's not about the walking. This no. isn't going to be anything like what he did. This is about just putting yourself out there, doing some walking, getting out there, doing the camping, getting out in the middle of nowhere, you know, kind of getting in touch and getting uh, sort of in tune with who you are and what you want to do by yourself, mm -hmm. but also the crux and the meat of everything that happened from that moment forward were the people that I ran into yeah, randomly and uh, never stopped ceaseless and then of course you know stuff like sitting out in the middle of wyoming and freaking out all night <laughs> those little moments and stuff. yeah exactly yeah. learning things about, i mean jesus there's so many uh aspects of that and confronting fear doing new things you know like the train hop uh met this guy on the rideshare thing at craigslist i was looking to get out of portland after the fourth of july i spent the fourth there and I'm perusing the uh the Craigslist ads mm -hmm. and uh found a kid who was looking for somebody to hop a train with him. Like, hey, that sounds cool. Yeah. I wonder if he's a dumbass. <laughs> I wonder if he's creepy. So I sent him an, e uh, an email and we exchanged a couple, met him down at Powell Books, and uh yeah, I wound up walking a couple of miles to the rail yard with this kid. Still half like watching him out of one eye. Right. Wondering yeah. if he's gonna like try to jump me and take my cliff bars, you know, once we get off the uh Don't take them cliff bars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we we did it. He knew he'd done some sort of research. I knew nothing about it, but he knew how to hop the train. He knew what trains to look for. Yeah, there's a whole manual about it. I yeah. had it back right before we left for the walk cross country. Yeah, he had it in his hands. Yeah. That's kind of what he was referring to. We spent a couple hours, like, hiding in the rail yard, and a little slow-moving slow freight train comes along. We hopped on. We're leaving Portland just as the sun's going down. And we had a full moon that night, and I felt like such a badass there's mm -hmm. been like two or three times where I had to call you. Yeah. Like, oh my God, dude, I, I don't know if you can hear me, but I'm on a freight train. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so badass right now. Yeah. And it was, man. It was so cool because it, it's like this vision. You had, I had an idea. I wanted to try that anyway. I didn't know that I'd ever be able to figure out how to do it because it takes some, yeah. you got the yeah, visions yeah, yeah. of the bulls and all that beating the shit out of people who do this. And, uh, yeah, that's what stopped me from doing it, Yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah, it's what stopped me from doing it again. Freight trains are incredibly dirty, they're incredibly loud, and they're unlit. 
That's the the three things that are, and they're cold because they're especially uh, you're outside. if you're north. Yeah, that night there was a full moon, and the train took the tr- set of tracks running parallel to the Columbia River. Mm-hmm. So you're going through the Columbia River Gorge in central Oregon. You're going through some of the best country in the country. Mm-hmm. It's so gorgeous, and it just this sense of I don't know what the word is, but just a, it's not even accomplished beyond accomplishment. Mm-hmm. But that is the one of the essences of life. Yeah, you know, it's one of those thrills. Yeah, you're just alive. Every ounce of you, your toenails feel like they're alive at mm-hmm. that moment, and you're tuned in. And this is why I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and the next morning, the sun comes up, and yeah, then we have to spend the next several hours hiding from yard workers and all that, and kind of throw war off a little bit after that. But right. the reality set in that we're actually breaking the law and we probably could get in some trouble here so maybe we should <laughs> right, right. disembark when Whoops. we get to the grand but a loose equation to it but um i remember first looking at uh hitching out of mexico yeah that was pretty daunting person who got me inspired like feeling comfortable to go off and do that was this 23 year old girl from a uh, white girl from um, canada didn't speak any spanish and she'd been doing it just fine for about seven weeks Wow, and and had been loved. She's the one who ended up hitching a boat from um, Colombia down to through the Panama Canal down to New Zealand. I think she ended up at Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I had met her through couch surfing also, and uh, we had started chatting. I met up with her down in San Chris, and uh, that was the, I think the only time I met her was just that one time. Yeah, and she's like, oh, it's fine. I, I hitch around all the time around here. And I was like, oh, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then later on when I got that email from about uh, going back and taking care of my aunt. Yeah. Oh, and I actually hitched out to go meet you. I think when you flew into Cancun, I was down in San Cristobal. Oh, yeah, you almost slept with the alligators or something. Yeah, alligators and scorpions. Yeah. Yeah, thank God for the kindness of Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a, had a guy actually put you up and bought you a ticket, right? Yeah, he put me up. That was up in Campeche, and uh, or in Carmen, in, yeah. in the state of Campeche. And uh, yeah, I was walking out of town trying to find a place. The town was a lot, lar- lot longer than I thought. It kind of sprawls along the coast. Yeah, and uh, I was trying to walk my way out of there, and it just was getting more and more city more and more nighttime as well and uh hit a stretch where there were trees along the side and it kind of dropped down you had to drop down about 10 feet to get down there <laughs> kind of eyeballing it. it was getting late i wanted to just get to sleep and was about to go hang myself off the wall and and drop into this this forest what i thought it was <laughs> and a pickup truck swung around and a guy with his son in there says it yeah, you don't want to sleep in there. <laughs> he spoke good. He spoke perfect English also. I think he'd spend a lot of time in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was an oil rigger. And, uh, yeah, he's like, no, you don't want to be down there. There's gators and there's alligators and scorpions down there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's like, why don't you just, I, he's like, I got a couch surfer already at my house. Why don't you come back to my house? <laughs> Crash. I got a bedroom for you. I got a pool out in front. I was like, yeah, that sounds better. Sounds better than this shit. <laughs> yeah. And then he said he'd, he'd drop me off at the at the edge of town, which was not far from where he lived, hmm. uh, the next morning. So I went back. We hung out. We had dinner and everything, chatting. Real real cool guy. Uh, and he even said, like, yeah, anytime you're coming through here and you want to stop by, just stop by, which which we did a few mm-hmm. weeks later with um, when we were on a road trip with yeah. some other friends. Yeah. And so in the morning, he's like, oh, I just got to go in, drop my son off at school, and then I'll drop you off. 
And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So we headed into town. While we're on the way in, he said, yeah, I'm not dropping you off on the edge of town. I was like, eh, okay. And he's like, I'm going to drop you off at the bus station. I don't think you're going to make it Cancun in time for your friend. <laughs> <laughs> and he bought me a yeah, 600 peso ticket, which yeah, is like nice 50 bus. bucks, it's but nice. it's a, That's a, nice a lot bus. of money for yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, especially in, yeah. in Mexico, it's a lot of money to spend. So, uh, yeah, I bought the guy a coffee. That was the only thing I could do for him. But yeah. <laughs> bus is down there, too. A 60, $60 bus. Oh, that was nice. Yeah, it's not your Greyhound, man. No, that was uh, the first class, yeah. like, Cush. Yeah. I was, yeah, they had coffee on the bus. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think it was a 13-hour ride over to Cancun, picked you up. Yeah. And we could get into a whole thing on the, the international stuff, too, I think, yeah. if we wanted to. Maybe we'll do that on Well, Skype. Mexico was cool to hitch, <clears> too, because, like, on my walk across country... Uh, I was going through Georgia, Alabama, you know, a lot of a lot mm. of poor states. And, you know, I'd saved for the trip. But a lot of people were offering me money, trying yeah. to give me money. And I had a real hard time with that. And a lady in Alabama finally told me, you know, you're not doing, you, there's not enough generosity in the world and you're not doing it any favors by turning it down. So I started adopting, when hitching, I adopted this philosophy of, okay, I'll, if I don't need it, I'm going to turn it down first. Uh, and if they insist, then I'll accept. And that became a standard practice. Even if I did need the money, I'd turn it down first, and then people would insist, and mm-hmm. you know, and then I'd accept. Or if they didn't insist, I wouldn't say, well, actually, you know, you let it go when you let it go. Yeah. So hitching up through Mexico, that took about two weeks. I was riding through Baja, back of a pickup with about, I don't know, five or six other workers. Mm-hmm. End of the day, coming home. Talking, my Spanish was passable at that point. So I was talking with one of them, and he's asking what I'm doing and why is a gringo out hitching around in Mexico. And yeah. and I was like, oh, I'm just I'm trying to get back to San Francisco. I got to, you know, my aunt is having health problems. I got to help look after her. You know, kind of traditionally in Mexico, family is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, oh, I really respect that. You know, like, um, yeah, let me let me give you some money. <laughs> and this is like a real blue collar, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah Mexican yeah, yeah. construction worker. Yeah, he's not making a lot. They need their money. Yeah, and I was like, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm gonna be there soon, and I've, I've got some money. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm okay. And he's like, no, 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 seriously. And he pressed a hundred, hundred pesos into my hand. That's wow. a lot of money for a worker. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I accepted it, and I, I think that's important because. I think that lady in Alabama was right. Is one, it's it's um, condescending, patronizing to tell someone, "No, you're too poor to give money to me." Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, and he wants to do something. He yeah. want, you know, he wants to feel good that he helped this guy out. Yeah, it's not a, not and it's it, helpful for me. But I mean, it's, it's it's not a completely altruistic act. They want to feel good about themselves. You know? Yeah, we've talked, exactly. We've had conversations about that before. It it is. You're taking something away from them. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if that's what they. You're you're telling them you're in a higher class than they are because yeah. you don't need their money. And I think mm-hmm. uh, you know there's other arguments of like the whole handout mentality or whatever. But not a handout but, if it's being offered. It's not like you're panhandling, holding a sign. I don't know. It's an interesting. Well, I, I I mentioned the guy, the uh, Native American guy that I ran into mm-hmm. in North Dakota in Williston. I think in the last one we did. If you didn't hear that, I was having dinner, mowing on a <laughs> cheeseburger, and a guy offered to pay for my. Uh, meal up at the counter got walked up said thanks i don't need you to do these no 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 i need to do this and he's like uh, he told me that his brother was a hitchhiker at one point in time and it had been hit by a car and killed and this was his way of honoring his brother had less to do with me than honoring you know his his uh, fallen family member so i was like all right 
what am I going to say to that? <laughs> you right. know, it's not like I can say no. I, all right, I appreciate it. You know, it wasn't exactly floating in money at that point. And uh, he helped, and I, I guess, helped him a little bit. But it didn't stop there. What was weird about Williston was, and this was during the, uh, the oil boom. They had an oil boom about 10 years mm-hmm. ago. And the unemployment rate in North Dakota was the lowest it was in the country. Wages were high. And I was there backpacking through. I didn't really comprehend any of this. I was just on my way through there. Right. And <clears throat> I didn't get any sleep that night because I was in an ur- kind of an urban setting. There wasn't any place to even throw the bivvy down. It's North Dakota, Williston. Right. You know, I basically slept in some high grass next to a Walmart for about an hour. Right. So the next day I'm tired. I'm just cranky. I'm like, fuck this. I just need to get through this day and hope I get a ride. So I sat down. I didn't wasn't hitchhiking mm. i just sat down next to a light pole at the end of a walmart parking oh, lot oh this was there yeah i thought that was in minnesota no 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 i never actually i don't think i got to minnesota mm. but i sit down and i'm just sitting there i'm not even really hitchhiking i'm just hoping that somebody sees the backpack gives me a ride and lets me kind of catch some winks of sleep <laughs> in the sun <laughs> right. you know and people started stopping i didn't understand it at first i had no idea why they were stopping they would get out of their car, walk around, and hand me like five or ten bucks. I'm like, what's this for? <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to? Oh, oh, thank you. All right. Well, the first cup, first time or two, yeah. it became like, uh, well, that's weird, but thanks, I guess, because I, I started to take the same attitude as you. I wasn't soliciting it, right? and I, I wasn't really going to be eager to take it, but if they insisted on giving it to me, I'd take it and consider it a sign, <laughs> I yeah, guess, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it kept coming. Right. I mean, it was it, it got to be ridiculous. Like, people <laughs> would just keep stopping. They were giving me fives, they were giving me tens, they give me dollars, they were giving me right. uh, change, whatever. Right. And I, I sat there, was not flying a sign, was not panhandling, was, I didn't even have a sign up saying I was hitchhiking. Right. I was just trying to sleep, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I just chose a weird spot to do it. And I wound up collecting like 50 bucks yeah. in a matter of a couple hours until I finally got up and like, okay, I this feels really weird. Yeah, I remember but, you telling me you left because you were embarrassed about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was. It was just like, uh, I, I got up and I think I moved to the other, like down further away so cars couldn't stop. Uh-huh. It was I was at like a stop sign where they were pull, pulling out of the parking lot, but they're going to the main driveway, so the cars had to stop there. Right. And I think that's what triggered it. So I moved down. And the money... Obviously, it stopped coming, I think, at that point. But some lady in an RV at the other end of the parking lot made a sandwich and brought it over to me. I mean, it was just, <laughs> nice. it was it was some of the most incredible, I, I it, unexplained generosity. I started calling based on that day. I couldn't explain it. I don't know why it happened. Mm-hmm. I still don't. I have an idea now because I think they thought I was traveling through looking for work. Mm. They had the oil boom there. And so they Help a kinda, guy out. Yeah, they were kind of connecting dots that maybe weren't there and giving right. me money. So I just started calling it unexplained generosity. And so anytime anybody gives me money now while I'm out hitchhiking, mm-hmm. I do, that's what I label it, UG, yeah. <laughs> because I didn't understand where it was going. I finally got out of there later that day. A guy took me into uh, Sydney, Montana, mm-hmm. just over the line from uh, uh, North Dakota there, set up in a parking lot next to a McDonald's on a main road trying to hitch out, trying to get out that night. <laughs> and this teenage girl... 17, maybe 16, 17 years old. They're out cruising, I think. Mm-hmm. They're just out fucking around being teenagers. They're at the complete other end of this parking lot. They see me, and she walks over all the way across this parking lot, brings me McDonald's, and gives me 10 bucks. <laughs> nice. She, she made some comment. It didn't have anything to do with work, but it, like, right on, here's to you, dude, or something like that. Right, gave yeah, me McDonald's yeah. and 10 bucks. And I'm just like, North Dakota, Montana. 
thank you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. Right. Yeah. 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 And then a cop shows up later. She thought I was panhandling. I think somebody saw her give me money uh-huh. and called the cops and thought I was panhandling. And this cop shows up and yeah, she has, she's like 22. Right. Really hot too. Uh-huh. And she's like, yeah, you know, you can't be soliciting for work here. I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get out of here. I'm not right. doing anything. I'm just sitting here hitchhiking. Well, hitchhiking's fine, but just make sure you're not asking for money or asking for work. Right. We're okay. They yeah. don't come to me anyways, apparently. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, apparently, at least here in this part of the country. So right. That blew me away. Yeah. It really did. Yeah, it's that kind of shit that's like crazy. Yeah. And when it's, you experience it, especially. I mean, that's it's like what Ingrid and I went through with the, in Georgia on my birthday. When I, I mean, that was a little different because it was a church and they just saw us sitting on the side of the road, invite us over and, you know, here we're walking across the country and all of a sudden you got the whole parish like yeah hanging yeah. on to us singing prayers and then hand, yeah. throwing money in our hands <laughs> yeah you know yeah. we went off and bought ourselves a birthday dinner for that it really it, it goes back to what we talked about before it's uh it flies in the face of the narrative that people are assholes and they're all predators and they're all you know and you're gonna run into nothing but jerks who wish you ill will and it's just it's in my experience anyway and i think in yours it's been nothing but the opposite well, and when you were saying uh, that you weren't soliciting money or that you weren't asking for money, I don't think, I don't know if you did, but I never once asked for money. Me neither. I never have. Yeah. Not once. And, uh, well, at least not from strangers. I did ask for money from my mom a couple times. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, it would just come. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I would prepare not to rely on it, but you could. Kind of, yeah. Uh, 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 in a weird sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. like, I, I made sure to make sure that I was taking care of myself, that I had my own money, that I wasn't going to be, you know, stranded or stuck somewhere. Right. But there were times that you would get low or something, and all of a sudden it would just, somebody hands you oh, 20 yeah. bucks. There's a guy in Wyoming, I remember getting a ride from him, he didn't even talk to me. He picked me up at uh, one of those barren, you know, like coming out of Craig. Yeah. In uh, Colorado. Yeah, and there's yeah, that yeah, exit yeah. there that's just, there's nothing there. Uh-huh. And this guy comes, he just waves me in. He was on the phone. And so I get in, I shut up and just stare out the window. And we drove, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he's talking pretty much the whole time. I'm just enjoying the scenery. Yeah. And then we're right about at the exit. Uh, where he was going to drop me off, and he gets off the phone. He's like, oh, hey, man, uh, I'm going to drop you off up here, and uh, why don't you go in there and get some food or get something to eat? Yeah. And he starts taking out a 20. And I was like, oh, no, you know, yeah. don't worry about it. I'm all right. And he goes, Zip. well, here, have another one. <laughs> he gave me 40 bucks. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the guy. And I was that, like, wow, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> guy, the guy, I got a ride uh, right after Dennis, a couple of days later after uh, Memorial Day there in Glenwood Springs. Uh, I got through Rifle. And decided to head north toward Wyoming. Mm-hmm. I don't remember why, but I did. Got outside of town, guy in a covered cab, pickup truck again, pulls over, like, get the fuck in. Hurry yeah. up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I like your directness. I think I'll accept. Yeah. And he's drinking again, and he's it's Memorial Day weekend, or just after. Oh, I, don't, I don't remember. Yeah, it might have been the, I don't remember what it was. It might have been the day after. But anyway, he's basically just roaring up this road toward Wyoming, just pounding natural light or whatever the hell he had in his cooler. Mm-hmm. And just a real, he's a pretty annoying guy. Uh, just real brusque and just, you know, he pulled into a bar in northern Colorado, goes, I'm going to buy everybody a drink. And blah, 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 blah. And they're like, okay. Right. 
we'll take it. Accepted. And he starts through because he had just gotten paid. He starts throwing his money around, and uh, he's like, "I want to buy that hand carved eagle up there. How much is it? It's not for sale. I want to buy it anyway. You know that kind uh, of guy. Yeah, yeah, right? that's annoying. Yeah, and uh, just like uh, somehow I got the point across that it was kind of annoying. Yeah, I didn't really say it because I was right, but I was in town, so I could have gotten. I was okay there, so right. I could express a little. <laughs> right, right, right. You had a little freedom of yeah. movement. Somehow he appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And a really, some people you, they they appreciate honesty if it's done well. Right. And he did, and he kind of calmed down a little bit. He finished his beers up, and we finally got back in the truck, and then we connected. Mm-hmm. Started talking about why I was doing this and what he was doing, his family and all this. Uh, he was headed up toward uh, Yellowstone. He kept offering to take me all the way to Yellowstone. Like, yeah, I'll take you within 10 miles of Yellowstone up in northern Wyoming. Yeah. And like, I don't know if I, A, I don't know if I really want to be in the car that long with you. Right. And two, I don't know where the fuck I'm going from there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I've still got it in my head that I'm, this was the second leg. So I don't, I don't know what the fuck I was doing then. Anyway, we uh, get on uh, I 80 there in Wyoming. And we're having a great conversation by now. You know, we've kind of, we bonded a little bit. Right. You know, rather than tolerating each other, we're, we're actually kind of becoming friends. Flicking. Yeah. Yeah. And he drops me off in Rollins at the the TA there, I think it is. TA or Flying J. Yeah. And we go inside, I get my Subway, and uh, he bought me the Subway. Mm-hmm. I let him buy me that because I was, I was hungry and I think I was poor at the time. Yeah. And then I'm um, getting ready to leave, go over to the KOA. It's across the highway from there because I didn't feel like finding camping. Yeah. Every now and then they'll you'll find those guys that say, hey, you're, get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Like, find me on Facebook. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. Sure. This guy I actually kind of wanted to stay in touch with. Yeah. And so he uh, wrote up his address, put it on a piece of paper, folded it up, put it in my pocket, shook his hand, and walk out of the KOA, go to take it out of my pocket and realize there's 20 bucks in there. Because <laughs> he, I think after yeah. he bought me the subway, he knew that I was probably not gonna, you not know, doing much. After yeah, that. yeah, right, yeah. So it's just, yeah. Just again, it's it's like, where are these assholes? <laughs> you know, right, and yeah. the generosity. Where's the, you know, the greed is prevalent. I guess. I, I mean, if you look at it through the electronic lens, mm-hmm. you can say that it's a greedy culture and all this. But there are a lot of really good people out there, and they're not hard to find. This is what I feel like is kind of a part of it. Is that a lot of those really good people that we're connecting mm-hmm. with. Are also probably a lot of them are probably also part of that the greed and connection and then it's just different moods and different I don't know it's a face to face connection I think that yeah that brings a lot of it out as individuals they're great people yeah you know you get into a business setting and it gets into those yeah. rules and that life and things change yeah I know I'm different when I'm doing business than when I'm a person yeah <laughs> you know yeah and i try and keep my morals and my ethics and everything in there but you know you're making hard decisions where people's jobs are based on like closing the hoff right and so i think i don't think it's a we're just meeting all the good people out there and no i don't a, think so you know, at all i think there i think there's you're dealing with life and you're dealing with money and you're dealing with your finances mm-hmm. how to make a living how to make ends meet there's obviously going to be a difference with how people approach that. But I, I, what I was struck with, and I'm still struck by it, I hate this about myself, that when I'm here, mm-hmm. and that is my only, you know, the pointing at the computer, and that, the television, mm-hmm. yeah, are my main means of interpreting the world. Oh, yeah, then everyone is horrible. I forget this. I forget what we've just been talking about, because the real flesh and blood experience and reality mm-hmm. does not jive with the Facebook avatars and the electronic eyes of the media. Exactly. That's why, for me, this project of trying to stay put, 
part of that is trying to retain a lot of a lot of everything that we experienced and felt like we learned mm-hmm. while traveling. Like those people aren't unique to meeting them while traveling. They they're still there when I'm yeah staying put right. And one to remember that yeah, and to to retain that lesson experience whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm while staying put and going back to only seeing the guy who cuts you off in the parking lot and the annoying yeah. people on TV and, you know, like hearing about everything blowing up. Yeah. Um, to remember, like, I could throw on a backpack, go back out there again and have the same, exp- even actually in the coffee shop that I was working at over in uh, Massachusetts and Amherst. There's a girl there. She's 25. She and I click real well. We're chatting a lot. She's sick of the job and she wants to get out and do something. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, travel, you know, like go hitching or something and like go drift. And she's saying, and I was like, that's what I did and it was great. And she's like, yeah, but you did that like 10 years ago. It's different now. And I was like, 10 years ago? No, it's People not. were telling me it was different 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. It's, it's not. It's the same thing. I was out last summer. Yeah. <laughs> and I did, I did this lap around Lake Champlain. Mm-hmm. He dropped me off in Vermont. I wound up in a fucking thunderstorm. Boots flooded. Torrential downpours, heavy fucking weather all over the place. I walked into a fuck it, what was it, an American Legion? Yeah. Yeah. In, uh, not Pulteney. Oh, fuck. Whitehall, uh, Fa- I think. Fairhaven. Yeah. Fair, oh, Fairhaven. Fairhaven, Vermont. I walk in just to get the fuck out of the weather and to get a beer to dry out. Mm-hmm. And I did not even sit down. And this Bill guy walked over saw me, asked me what I was doing, went out, had a cigarette with me, and had instantly been invited. I hadn't even sat down. Yeah. And was had a ride over to Whitehall right. uh, in New York, just over the state line, had a place to camp. He was going to call his dad to see if I could throw my tent up in his dad's, his elderly father's yeah. <laughs> front yard. <laughs> yeah. And if that, if that didn't work, uh, he suggested that I just throw the tent up behind the American Legion in Whitehall because he was a member. He knew everybody there. Right. And I hadn't, again. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I feel, hadn't even sat down yet. I feel like like hearing that from her. Yeah. It, it reminded me of, you know, not yeah. walking cross country because yes. I didn't know how to pack a pack. Yes. You know, it's yes. a, in a, an excuse to do something that she wants to do something like that. Why I was suggesting it. Yep. Chatted with her. I know, kind of have an idea of what yeah. she's into. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's that fear hump that everybody needs to get over to get yeah. out. And, um, yeah, it's willingness to take a risk. Maybe it's a little bit of hubris to understand that, you know, maybe you are, to an extent, mm-hmm. having to rely on luck, at least psychologically. Yeah. You know, you have to believe that you're going to be okay and, and convince yourself you're going to be okay until you actually get out there and realize, I'm going to be okay. Right. You know, like a kid at uh, in Phoenix, I guess in 16. I literally had just gotten on the bus and was just getting ready to start all this. Mm-hmm. Free your brain. You're going to figure it out as you go, and every you can't possibly figure everything out sitting in this bus terminal. Right. Take it as it comes. Have fun. Right. Just enjoy the moment, and you're going to you're going to figure all this out as you go along. There's probably a bigger lesson in there somewhere. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to try to extract that, but that, yeah, that's top to bottom, front to back, everywhere I've gone, and uh, you know my hitchhiking dried up. After 2010, after uh, the the ass crack incident and all that, mm-hmm. up in upstate New York, uh, I've I've taken a few trips since then, but it's never really. I know what's there, right? You know, it's never been bad, right? But it's uh, really hard to really, really, really connect with it because I've experienced it. You know, I'm not looking for that stuff anymore because I found it, right? Nothing's changed. 
Right. It's just yep, still, still there, still there. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been a little uh, hard to sustain it, hard to really embrace it, I guess, and really and, and just immerse myself in that because I think the lessons or the, the I guess the words the insights mm-hmm. what, what's really out here. Right. I know. Yeah. No, and that's why now I see like this buying land over in Mass and doing yeah. this project and and going home. Like you and I talk a lot about this. this Joseph Campbell kind of return home idea, and it's true. I think it's it's it's. Well, just let me let me uh, because I I went into the Plato's Cave thing. Yeah, uh, a few episodes back, and it's the same idea. What he's talking about is the mythological heroes return. Mm-hmm. They go off and they do their thing. Not saying we're heroes, but sort of the uh, the same thing as the person in the cave who escapes and goes off, sees the upper world, frolics around in the real world, sees reality, quote unquote, comes right. back, and he has to he has an obligation. To go back to the cave and tell people what he saw, whether they think he's crazy or they kill mm-hmm. him or whatever. That's that's the return, and that that's the same idea goes throughout mythology. And Joseph Campbell gets into it in uh, in depth really well. Here, uh, hero with a thousand faces. Yeah, and that's I th- where that came from. I think the since we've been talking about the the return home and trying to define it and see what it is, rather than is it physically a return home? Like, I mean, physically, that's what you and I have just done. <laughs> Literally, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think it's, I think an interpretation of that is taking in the in the hero's journey and that outline of it. The first step is hearing the call, which is you mm-hmm. know that that stepping out. Um, yep. I had a interesting conversation with a lady at a, at a bar about this. I was saying I feel like everyone hears this call, and she's uh, she was disagreeing with me, and I was saying well, I don't. I'm not saying everyone. I'm saying most people don't listen to it they don't understand it right mm-hmm. they don't understand it they don't know it's a call they don't you know they just yeah they feel something where it doesn't yes. sit right and they just you know culture our culture kind of encourages you to not listen to it well that's the splinter in the mind that i used to talk yeah about. exactly it's, it's sort of some <clears throat> uh, unexplainable anxiety mm-hmm. that you feel something's just off right and you don't know what i guess if you dig deep enough and i, I went into the stream of consciousness stuff in another episode that's where, you know, that we're going to get into this. If we keep down this path, we'll start talking about the voice and all this other stuff and, and trying to tune into what that is and right. what it is about the world of the society or how you're living that's causing the anxiety and friction in your mind, the splinter. Right. I'm not moving off your point. To me, from my perspective and what I've come up with and learned, mm-hmm. and the conclusion that I've come to is that's the call. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's exactly kind of what, what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think uh, you have that call, and then when you follow that call, I think you need a commitment to yourself. I refer that to my sister, saying like, "You got to commit to one or the other." Right. And I committed to that. The call. I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but that's. And then I think what the return is, is I think the return is the few people who do go out and do that. Who, who follow that and have that commitment to themselves and gain whatever experience mm-hmm. they gain there and insights that you're talking about, that we're talking about. I think the return is that obligation to translate those insights into something hearable to those who didn't. Right. You it's know? exactly the same thing. It's, it's returning to the cave. 
<coughs> and yeah, telling, exactly. And telling people that, you know, maybe that shadow, that puppy on the wall is not really a real puppy. Maybe it's just a shadow puppy. Let me go show you a real puppy. Right. Or let me tell you about a real puppy. Well, and like uh, one of my favorite stories I learned in my, so I went to art school, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> let me tie one thing in for you for, for real quick. You were just talking about as far as the uh, the purpose and the call and all that. Yeah. To go back to the, um, the religious stuff. Yeah. That's what I was talking to Snake about in North Carolina yeah. was that he, you know, I told him I just had this compulsion and this this drive to to do this. I mm-hmm. couldn't really explain it. And that's how he sort of, you could have this conversation with someone who's not agnostic. That's the thing that he was trying to get across to me, I think, was that I was being called, whatever I, I consider the call mm-hmm. was in the religious vernacular Jesus. Yeah. Or God calling me to his will. But it's all the same fucking thing. That's the same conversation I had with that guy out of Roswell. But it's it's all the same. Exactly. You're, you're, we're just putting it in different terms. And there is a common thread of relatability here. Mm-hmm. It's if you can get through the dogma. Right. You know, if, if a religious person happens to be hearing this, we're talking about the same thing. Right. You have to be able to get through and take <laughs> off the, the dogma glasses and be able to see the idea behind it. Well, that's like, yeah, I mean, the, the religious people that I would talk to that I was in, enjoying conversations with once I learned to translate were the ones who were actually religious, not not just into the dogma. Actually but, religious. Yeah. Or actually spiritual, actually, you know, like actually believing in Believers. what they were talking about. Right. Rather than kind of regurgitating what the good book says or what the preacher says or, right. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But actually had, you know, thoughts and experience yes. behind it and belief in it. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say before about, about going back and talking to people mm-hmm. to translate these insights into something hearable. One of my favorite one reason I was saying I, was, I had gone to art school was our electives. My elective was a history of math rather than math. And there's a great story in there from the Greeks of the guy who figured out that one-third, one-third, and one-third as three-thirds, uh, but 0.3 repeating times three is 0.9 repeating, and three-thirds yeah. is a whole. Yeah. The prominent mathematicians of that time took him out to the Mediterranean and dumped him overboard. <laughs> and I think that, that yeah. speaks entirely to that non-hearing of of a message that's true. I mean, that's math. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was reading some. It might have been, I'm, I'm reading this John Stuart Mill <clears throat> book uh, on liberty. And I think there was another analogy in that mm. as well about how it's more political of an idea. And I'm not going to put it in that framework, but how things change. Society's opinions change over the course of time. And how the guy who just got, like, you're talking about this guy being thrown overboard, and there are people that have probably been burned at the stake for heretic, her- right. heretical thoughts. Right. A <laughs> hundred years later, we're proven. Yeah. But it, it's really <clears throat> peculiar how that happens, you know, yeah. over the course of time and how, how people have evolved and how those attitudes and are proven right and then they change, you know, over time. And I wonder, I, I, I often wonder where we're at on that, uh, in that respect now. You know, what beliefs we're holding today mm-hmm. that are going to just be in 200 years just seem just ridiculous yeah, i mean probably a lot of them i don't yeah, know i don't know either who knows yeah I mean, just, what, what beliefs were we holding on to 200 years ago that that burning witches well i guess it was 400 but something down that line slavery yeah. things like that although yeah. that's still around yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you got to hit the airport. We're uh, getting you out of Kalamazoo next hour or so. You're going to be on the road, right? I'm going to be in a terminal, and I'm going to be in the air. See the wonders of Detroit Metro. You excited? Woohoo! 
North Terminal. <laughs> I don't remember North Terminal. <laughs> I guess to put a bow on this, I mean, we, we didn't really get into a lot of 09 and uh, the stuff that you and I did uh, out east or anything like that, but it's pretty much more of the same with the the difference being the, I mean, the details of what <laughs> my happened family stuff but I, yeah. yeah i feel like the details of what happened is like a bathroom book you know it's it's kind of like they're neat anecdotes you leave them on a coffee table stuff like that i i feel like what we've been talking about is 09 is 10 and and 11 you know i mean these these ideas that that's what it was where we were and what we were doing, I think, is... I think they have value. I think they're they're worth more than a bathroom book. I mean, to you and I who have told these stories a hundred times to 500 different people, yeah, yeah it probably seems... Maybe, yeah. yeah. These books sell. You know, these stories do, well, yeah. do sell. I don't know. I guess that's the thing, like, when I finished my walk across country and people was asking me, like, when I was going to write the book on it and all that stuff. Yeah. And I was like, well, one, it was, you know, it was for me. <laughs> that that trip was for me and what I learned along the way has been helpful and useful mm-hmm. and all the people that followed me along the way through mm-hmm. the guest book or things like that that was a personal journey that I think if I wrote it up into a book it would be I don't know confectionary I thought you were writing a book well I want to do the story of the Hoff mm-hmm. but I think because it encapsulates the hitching the walk is kind of a interesting prologue it sets a lot of things up Mm-hmm. But along these ideas, yeah, you know, like right. I don't think anybody gives a shit about the story of the Hoff either. But it's the it's the bones of a of a way to frame a story to talk about these ideas, which I think are are interesting to people. And that's mm-hmm. what I mean by like the actual the anecdotes. Yeah, they're interesting, but I think they're more interesting when you hear them in person because you actually mm-hmm. you you're meeting a guy who's telling you that they did these things. You read a book about an interesting guy, and if it's not, you know, if the punctuation's off, it's a bad book. But the story's still amazing, but who cares? He didn't write it very well. I feel like there needs to be an idea under it. They're conveying something. These insights, like mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Yeah. That's that's more what I want to be writing about. I'm just yeah. framing it around the story of the Hoff because it, it makes a good skeletal structure. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like with the walk cross country, I didn't have any any insights that I felt relative enough to, to put into a book. I... I vehemently disagree with that uh but not my story (laughs) but i i when i first found it i guess if you're diminishing what happened when i read it that's one way to look at it but it hit me i think you're selling that completely short i probably yeah just because you've experienced it though i think it's coming from a position of familiarity one for you yeah you experienced it right you've immersed yourself in it for a long time and you actually spent you know the better part of two years doing it so everything to you is uber familiar Right. And has a familiar taste in your mouth. Someone who reads it for the first time, as I did mm-hmm. 10 years ago or 14 years ago now, it doesn't hit them the same way. It doesn't hit someone the same way who has a job. Someone who cannot, you know, those people right. that we ran into when we were hitchhiking all the time that said, oh, God, I wish I could do something like this, but I can't. I've got kids. I've got a mortgage and all that. I, I think the anecdotes themselves mm-hmm. hold value beyond what you have to say about them. Whether or not they're insightful or not coming from you, mm-hmm. people also will draw their own conclusions. People also draw their own insights based on other people's experience in the privacy of their own home when they're reading these things. It's not up to you or us. Right. I have to put myself in this category, too. <laughs> right, right. It's not up to me to do all of the cognitive legwork. They can well, do it themselves. And you shouldn't. Yeah. and I those you shouldn't. Yeah. That story, I think, to me. Again, mm-hmm. I, I think the walk in particular, uh, the walk, I think the hitchhiking and all the other stuff that we've done mm-hmm. beyond that, I think it has value beyond how we season it. 
Yeah, no, yeah. probably. And I think the walk definitely fits in with this story. Mm-hmm. This large. I mean, like, I want to have the walk in that book. Yeah. I want to be talking about that. I want to be able to reference, kind of like the way that we did this podcast. Yeah. Of setting up by talking, starting out talking about the walk. Yeah. And or, or whatever we did. I think we started off with Peru, but Peru. Then anyways, the but <laughs> those were definitely those were needed to be in in these to give a, a sense of framework of mm-hmm. where am I coming from? Right. You know, who's this yeah. guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think you know, and I have to recognize that some of my inspiration to walk across the country came from that book. I can't even remember the name now. World walk. Yeah. Yeah. About the guy who walked around the world back in the eighties. Stephen Newman. Yeah. Interesting book. And that was, you know, not the best written book, but it was definitely interesting. I tore through that thing. First time I read it, two days. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I I devoured that book. First time. I can't read it now. It isn't. Yeah. Uh, On a second pass through. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe from this perspective of having done, kind of something you know not on that scale right. but something similar it's, it's hard but yeah i would highly recommend to somebody that has any interest especially if yeah, you're World young is really good. yeah it's it's worth a read Stephen yeah. newman is the, the yeah. guy's name i think i hadn't heard of uh, him or mccandless before i ran into you i think i got the the world walk yeah you, get, you didn't get mccandless from me did you uh i didn't wild. know who chris mccandless <laughs> was until into the wild came out you know seven movie. yeah Oh, okay. I'd heard of this guy who lived in the California desert, went to Alaska, and died eating roots or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I don't remember when I first read that. I think it was like on the walk. Let's deal with McCandless just for a minute, one more time, because he's he's a guy that that has popped up over and over and over. Well, we again. talked a lot about him in the beginning. Yeah, we did. He was a main focal point at one point. You even went to that the bar in, in South Carthage. Dakota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We was passing through there and. Mm-hmm. Oh, nine, mm-hmm. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, we hit a bunch of his spots. Slab City, you mm-hmm. hit Carthage. Yep. Um, I saw Wayne Westerberg <laughs> up there. The uh, the actual Wayne from Into the Wild, the movie. Uh-huh. The guy, the character was based on. Uh, Leslie and Bonnie and I were sitting outside. Had just walked out of that bar. We had a couple of bars at the Gabber, or a couple of beers at the Gabber there. And we're sitting outside getting ready to get back in the car. And that guy, Wayne, the real one, oh, yeah. was walking in there. We, <clears throat> oh, nice. Yeah, we didn't have the, we didn't say anything to him or anything. It was just like, wow. <clears throat> How'd you know it was him? I've seen his face in like newspaper articles oh, okay. of people that had interviewed him after the movie. Yeah. And he's got a really distinctive, you, okay. know, you can tell <laughs> who he is. What other places we hit that were, at least in the book or the movie? Well, I know Carthage. Ingrid, Ingrid and I camped behind uh, Emory. Uh, the college. Yeah, yeah we graduated out of. I mean, uh, this wasn't an intentional hit, but uh, my uh, best friend in college, he went to, I don't know if it was the same high school as him or, or yeah. uh, same, he was Fairfax, yeah. Virginia. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I have too many. I think Slabs was the only one I actually like intentionally hit thinking of him. He was up around Port Townsend. Was Spent, he? yeah, quite a bit of time up in uh, in uh, the Olympic Peninsula. I know he got up there. I don't know if it was quite a bit of time. I shouldn't say that. Astoria, I never got to Astoria. No, me either. Yeah, I guess maybe there aren't that many. No, but he was a focal point because... Yeah, he was. His ideas and... Yeah. Where are you at with that now, with him, as far as he goes? How do you feel about... God, I don't even know. I haven't even thought about him much in a long time. I haven't either. Into the Wild, the book, I still really connect with. I really liked um, that that was more... wasn't really about him. It was kind of like, again, (laughs) using him as the the skeletal section of framing this... this Archetype. Portrait of an archetype that that Krakauer wanted to talk about, and I felt really 
connected with that. Yeah. That suburban runaway, you know, trying to reject everything. Yeah. I mean, it took me a long time to accept the idea that I could tell people I grew up in the suburbs. I mean, after our hitching, I think it was like 30, 35, 36. I was mm. at the Hof by then. And it was when I started setting up the, the school, the sustainability school. Yeah. And, and started accepting help from my mom financially to get that set up. Um, a lot of help, well, primarily like 90%, if not more of that money came, came from my mom and that whole, you know, like wanting to reject that, uh, was straight into that archetype of mm-hmm. this like angry privileged kid. You know, and my, my argument was are privileged kids inherently just wrong and, yeah. and wrestling with that. You and I had a camel through the needle. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. yeah, yeah. That was the the when we ran into Ray out there at uh, Slab City. <laughs> I remember talking about it with you outside of Boise when we left in uh, Oregon. We were camping out in that that uh, cornfield or something, some sort of field with our coyotes. After Lynette us. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And um, and we kind of split ways then. You know, I was still defensive and stubborn and argumentative at that point about it. And I was overly aggressive, to be fair, right. a lot of that time, I think. Yeah, I mean, we were a good mixture for buttonheads on that yeah, subject. Yeah, yeah, um, A lot of fireworks. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, getting into uh, doing the, the kind of social work with the village and the, the School for Sustainability and realizing I don't have any resources yeah. unless I accept help. Right. That help is there for me. Right. And what is, I mean, I'm an advantaged kid. So how can I use that advantage to best spread it out to to help that advantage to as many other people who don't have that advantage? Taking the doing it yourself, egocentric part of it out, eliminating the ego middleman to where you can actually use the resources you have to do the most good. Exactly. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. And that was the the kind of reconciliation I had with myself a little bit was to acknowledge yeah I have I have access to resources that other people don't have access to and yeah. and I can I can use those to to help improve some quality of life where I am mm-hmm. and that's still what I'm what I'm doing now I'm trying to get a little bit more autonomous and not be a yeah. drain yeah yeah <laughs> you know as a, I still subscribe to that uh the airplane motto of uh you know adjust your own mask before you help somebody else yeah right with theirs and <laughs> you know and how how well till your own soil yeah. exactly yeah i mean <clears throat> bringing things back home and trying to c- collect the the lot of my lessons and insights along the way how to manage my resources and how to manage my energy and my ability yeah i think uh bringing that home is is the best thing that i can do it's the culture i'm the most fluent in it's the language i'm the most fluent in it's where i grew up yeah that all makes and and it's struggling you know springfield's about the same size as waraz waraz is growing down in peru and springfield's declining steadily yeah they've just uh, taken on a casino to try and repair themselves we'll see how that goes yeah and the other argument of you know like why are you always helping abroad Right. Um, I love afar is spite at home. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's a valid argument and uh, different levels. As well. So I equate that all to the kind of this McCandless thing, where like Chris McCandless, you know, he grows up a wealthy kid with ang- you know, with angry fighting parents and mm-hmm. uh, hates his home, doesn't have any sense of community, and feels like a loner, and so he mm-hmm. throws everything away and goes and burns. I mean, 
What did he do? $300. Two or $300. He burnt the pile of money in the... Yeah, he donated the, the ten grand or something like that. Uh, to, Twenty. I thought it was like twenty five. dollars It was know. a lot of money. There's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, to Oxfam. Yeah. And then, yeah, he takes off. He gets to try to wash out there in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, car gets flooded in a flash flood. He burns his money and decides he's going to walk around. What lake is that there? I don't know, but I know shortly after he ended up working at McDonald's. Yeah, and he worked as a, they don't put in the movies, he also worked at a uh, uh, an Italian restaurant for a long time right. in Vegas. Yeah, he was like I, six months. Six months, yeah. He was, he was out, I think he left Emory in, uh, from when he left Emory until he died, I think was a year and a half. Yeah. And you think, you, it was something like that. It, it wasn't was, a long yeah, period of time. No, it wasn't. And you add in there the amount of time that he's working in this Italian restaurant, which was, I think that was six months. Yeah. He does a season work yes. in, uh, in South Dakota. He does a winter at Slab City. He does a winter at Slab City. So, I mean. He was hunkered down quite a bit. Yeah, I think yeah, I think he was more hunkered down than he was wandering around because he didn't know what he was doing. I mean, nobody does when they're leaving like that. I don't know. I can't speak for the kid. We don't well, have I don't any. Know. I don't know. We've got him. interpretations, basically, of Chris McCandless. That's one of the things that bothers me about this whole story is that mm-hmm. he never really wrote anything up. He left notes in his books, and he mm-hmm. may have had a journal, but he never really told his story. Right. Uh, the deep <laughs> the, the deep state story of Chris McCandless, right? right? And so we, we've got these interpretations of it, and he may have. And I've done this. I've I've gone out and I've done similar things to what he was doing. And maybe he figured the same fucking thing out. That maybe it's not necessarily about being in motion, being in perpetual motion. You know, he he ran into Westerberg up in mm-hmm. up in the Dakotas. He ran into that couple in the RV. How many other people did he run into and bond with? Have good experiences with? Right. Maybe he had a girlfriend. Ron. He might have had a girlfriend in Vegas. You know, you, you don't. Yeah. Nobody knows. Right. You know, because nobody has the real actual story. My thing is, is that he. I'll bet you once he dis- disconnected and once he unplugged mm-hmm. and pulled himself away, stripped everything down, mm-hmm. I'll bet you he found some sense, some energy, and some connection with more people than they're letting on. Mm-hmm. That would explain the lack of motion. You know, he connected with some people in Carthage. Right. Uh, the, yeah, like the old guy, I forget what was his name. Ron, I can't remember. Something, his whatever. Yeah. yeah, the old guy. And then he mm-hmm. had that couple in, in, in at Slab RV. City. Yeah, who else? Yeah, I mean, you don't know. Is, yeah. And uh, what's interesting, I don't know, you see that pendulum swing also when he leaves. The the Oxfam donation, yeah. the burning the money, right. the you know ditching his car. That's all, I feel like a lot of that's done in anger. Yeah. In this kind of like, I can relate. fuck you. Yeah, I'm, I you can know, fucking I'm relate out. to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, that was the part that I, I don't know, I guess, I don't know where I am on anger. You seem to think I have more of it in me than I do. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I never. When I was traveling around and st- and and walking cross country, and I never felt like I was doing that out of anger. I never felt like I was spiting anybody by doing it. The way that the impression is given. Now you were you, you, you to me. You seemed again. I'm not. I'm playing the psychoanalyst here. Right. But uh, you you seem to be chasing something rather than running from it. Right. And that's, I think, a big difference. McCandless, to me, it seems clear, was running away from getting, getting not running away, but getting away from something. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think you were in pursuit of something. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's fair to say there was a little bit of running away in there as far as just my hometown out of mass. Like, mm-hmm. leaving out of there, I think that was a that was my horse out of the gate. And, and that was left, like, never wanted to go back there. Yeah. Were you running from it, or you wanted to see what else was out there, though? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I honestly don't know. I wouldn't say that I was. 
I don't know. I felt really at home in New York. Yeah. Uh, like I said, and that was the place I landed pretty much next outside of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Hawaii was just like an escape pod. Yeah. You know, hated it there. And then yeah. as soon as I could get out, I did. <laughs> it's Des Moines for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I went straight to New York and I found my, my people there basically. Yeah. And then those, that community that I found, not the people themselves, but mm-hmm. the community got corrupted. Because right. my community was the film community. Yeah. And the natural progression of that was to grow. And you grow into this, like, shitty cocaine-driven, you know, yeah. chasing money and idols and, and this kind of stardom and fame kind of thing. And, and that just felt awful. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. When I started to really be successful at it, I, I hated it more and more. Yeah. So I dropped out of that pretty quickly. Yeah. I found an incredible amount of, em- <clears throat> of emptiness when I started to get good at what I was doing and I started to get recognition mm-hmm. and, you know, being recognized at the gas station by my voice. Yeah. I found an incredible amount of emptiness followed that. What do you mean? It didn't measure up. It didn't fill me up the way that I thought it would. Oh, the yeah. fact that people recognized you is yeah, like, okay. Yeah. So now I'm still, now I'm recognizable and I'm still like, what the fuck am I doing? Right. Yeah. I still exactly. don't feel any better. Well, yeah. thanks. I mean, I did for like 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah still smoked the cigarettes I bought in there, still ran out of them, still had to go <laughs> to the gas station again. And they didn't That's... recognize me the next time, so what the fuck? <laughs> no. Yeah. That, my biggest level of fame that I got was yeah. working at coffee shops. Yeah, 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 yeah. That local celebrity hood that, but it's, that it's, you get. But what it is, though, it's not the celebrity hood. It's just being successful at what you're doing. Right. And that's how it manifests in, in radio. Is people recognize you. They know your name. They know your voice. They know what you do. Right. You can equate that to any sort of other success. Once you, However you define what that is, right. uh, <clears throat> once you achieve it, you're still there. Your success is bringing you with it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to adapt to that. And you're still probably going to be the same miserable prick you were when you were unsuccessful, just with success. Right. You then know, I feel like it, it tends to to drag you along with it, you know, yeah, in yeah. that sense of you're, you then feel a little, I don't know, I did at least feel a little trapped by lack of options because I'm successful down this field. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. no, that's yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I, in all honesty, I think that's, I've, I've explored this writer's block. That's been go- it, silly to even call it a block anymore because mm-hmm. I stopped, I've stopped feeling like I was writing anything. Yeah. I, do journal entries and shit like that, but yeah. really stop like my prolific writing, prose writing, that mm-hmm. kind of script writing, all that stuff just dropped off the fucking cliff in 99. Yeah. And it just never came back. And that's a lot of why I got out of film because that was why I wanted to get into film. And two yeah. years later, if I still couldn't write, then what's the point of being there? Right. The whole idea was tell stories. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that's why I'm excited to kind of write this, write this up now because I feel like I have something to pull from and, and yeah, I'm hoping gotcha. to yeah. find my pen again. Yeah. You know? <laughs> find a voice through your hand. That voice, yeah. Yeah. Because I can tell these stories fine. Yeah. You know, verbally now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm hoping to find that. I was given so much praise in college yeah. for my writing that uh, my aunt and I had this conversation when, when I was helping mm-hmm. her out because she was a promising artist as well. Uh, and got a lot of praise. And when we got that to, a, I don't know, I guess a certain level uh, where we just shut down, mm-hmm. where you didn't want to disappoint yourself by the next thing that you wrote because it wouldn't live up to the last thing you wrote. Yes. You know what I mean? I do. And my aunt identified with that. A lot of people I know have identified with that of this like, 
this fear of failure that'll crack this identity as the like oh i'm this impeccable writer self-identity yeah exactly it has nothing to do with anybody else mm-hmm. it's more what i feel like i'm putting out there and yeah. and um now when i sit down and write stuff it's some of it's good and some of it's shit when yeah. I, write, I write the shitty stuff and oh, jesus christ yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah you know and i have very 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 few things that i've written that i i feel like live up to what my potential could be uh, and those things desperately need editing also. Yeah. You know, they're like maybe two or three one-page stories. <laughs> editing is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. As my friend Bobby told us on Friday. Yeah. You know, this is this is stuff where you and I, I think, can really, I, I think, offer a lot to people. Because we've gone through this and we, we have ideas on, I have a lot of ideas on and experience with the damage the egocentric identity can do to you mm-hmm. and how you see yourself and what you depend on to mainline that. In other words, the the drug that goes into your vein to support that egocentric vision of an identity that you have mm-hmm. and how you cannot, and it's so painful to break that because it feels like it happened with, with me with radio, and I think it's about to happen with the, the traveling. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of that. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been, you know, I went from radio, I got out of it, didn't know what to do, but I had this little transition into traveling. Right. No, and you've that been doing it 10 years 10 years now, now this year, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to say how old I am, but let's just say I'm 29 for the multiple nth time. I can't do this forever. Mm-hmm. There's going to come a point where I can't just, backpack's right there. Right. I can't just pack this thing up, hop on a bus, and go and, you know, right. traipse around the country forever. And so I think I'm going to have to endure that again, and it's hard. Well, and you've also experienced doing that and finding it, you know, it's just redundant. Well, yeah. But you know that doesn't matter. <laughs> no, yeah, I know, you know. But I'm saying, like, like, the more you hit those redundancies, right. the more you have that well, that renewed splinter in your mind. Right, again. and you're you're actually hitting on something very important because mm-hmm. if you hold on to it for too long, mm-hmm. uh, like I think I did probably with radio for a year, probably three years too long. I mm-hmm. should have gotten out of radio the first time a lot quicker than I did, but I didn't want to get rid of that. So I was miserable doing it. It wasn't doing anything for me. It sure as fuck wasn't doing what it did in the beginning. Oh, I did Not, that in film too, yeah. Yeah, and now I think I'm, part of me, if I do this past this summer, this, we talked about the retrospective shit. It's 10 years mm-hmm. since 2008, since I first did this. And going out and reconciling what's out there now, how the country's changed, how I've changed, mm-hmm. I can see that. That I can put my head around. Right. Doing it anywhere mm-hmm. beyond this year is basically kicking a dead cat, mm-hmm. delaying the inevitable pain of having to be rebirthed. Right. No, yeah. and I that's why I see this landing home uh, in Massachusetts, this land idea is a is a big thing for me because it's my it's what I see as a a reasonable landing pad. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> a reasonable way to land on my feet and change. Yeah. And start doing something new. I'm not going to do the Hoff again. I'm not doing the same program. But you're going to learn from it. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to take from that. I'm going to take from the travel. Yeah. And uh, and wrap it all. And that was the nice thing about starting the Hoff was I found that all of my experiences, all my interests, from anywhere from film to coffee shop work to genealogy to playing D&D, all became really relevant in running this little hostel and doing these programs. How does D&D become relevant? (laughs) D&D, well, the problem solving and the living up there is like your little adventure man. And it was, mm. it it all fit. It was weird. 
the genealogy stuff all may all fit in because of the working with the the indigenous people there, the the Quechua, oh, and, yeah, and yeah. reconciling like, yep, you know, my my people landed. 400 years ago and did a bang up job with the states mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah and uh, not wanting to repeat some some incidences there or influences we should probably wrap this up we do have to get you to the airport i'd love to continue yeah. this if it was hard early we yeah, had to but... actually take a two-hour break because uh well the power went out we didn't know that <clears throat> uh generator kicked on i was just like i think this is a good wrap-up point anyways I yeah think we've hit all the points the rest is we could explore it more easily, but... Yeah, this is a good place to proceed forward, I suppose. I would say that uh, the one thing that I would add is it kind of ties into what I was just saying before. I mean, if you're... I don't know who listens to this. I never get any feedback or stats or anything that are worth a shit. So I, I, I could either be talking to 10,000 people or I could be talking to, you know, some random Chinese guy who got the wrong website. Don't know. Maybe. But if you're... uh no. <laughs> If you're like... Yeah, I, I would say that... um you know, if you ever have considered doing anything like this, if you're one of those people that have, if you were to see us on the side of the road, you'd be like, God, I wish I would have done something. I wish I could do something like that. You can. You know, most right. of you, if you, unless you've got kids that you're at home raising or you've got, you know, a 40-year mortgage, the changes, even the, even a mortgage, a house could be sold. If you really right. wanted to do something like oh, this. If you're handicapped, something like that. Yeah, but. right. But beyond that. Um, I'll figure out the essence of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think most people I think that the trick is 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 I think I think it's really important to find time to to be able to be reflective without feeling right. like you're being drowned in kids getting to school, yeah. mortgage payments, getting to work, you know. We're blessed in that sense. Yeah, we don't have Well, I think that's that's uh, yeah, I mean we were able to have the time to be able to have the the to to reflect yeah. and and see where we wanted to go and we also had the freedom and the support from from our friends and family of various ways yeah. to experiment with it and fuck up. And I didn't think that I had that when I started. So yeah. I think anybody out there thinking about this, listening, whatever, you might have that out there yeah. and not know it and or be yeah. discrediting it. So take a real honest look at, at what you want and what where you want to be going and, and at least making it an attempt to aim to get there. Yeah. I think it's important also that we were talking about the identity stuff and I think it, I think you just nailed it on the head. Figure out not what you're expected to do or what you should be doing or what other people, the ministry of what I used to call the ministry of standards and practices, your friends, your family, everybody that wants to tell you how you should be living and what you should be right. doing. <clears throat> Shut that off and have a real good factual conversation with yourself about what it is you want out of your life and figure out if you can get there. And you know? tune it into yourself. That's, that's exactly what I just said. That's that's exactly what I mean. Just having a good conversation with yourself so yeah. you know who you are. That's a really, you know, it sounds weird to say that. Oh, I know who I am. Do you? Right. I, a lot of people don't. Well, and I think it's it's oh. easy to sit down and have that. Well, it's not easy, but to have a dis- <laughs> have that kind of conversation with yourself logically and, yeah. and and using reason and and this and that and this that's why i say tune in i i feel like the intuition is a powerful thing thanks man <laughs> i enjoyed these thanks for uh sitting down. thanks for the help moving too no worries i appreciate it maybe someday i'll help you move maybe i'm not gonna count on it i wouldn't either yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, that's going to wrap this one up. You're listening to the Escaping the Cave podcast, Tazilla X-Pod. I'm on Google Play. I am on the uh, the iTunes. It's this new thing. You should look it up. And also, ET, uh, fuck it, at ETC Pod on Twitter. 
and uh, Facebook and all that. Happy horseshit. I think I'm on the Christopher Media Network still. Too. That was a nice ramble of networks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to eat that orange now. Good. I'm going to go to an airport and sleep there. Yeah. Talk to you next time. So long. I'm still here. You didn't send help. Where's my fucking hashtag?